Hello and welcome back to Art Holes, the art history podcast with a real tenuous episode release schedule. I hope everyone is happy and healthy and ready to finish Frida's story. We are here. We're at the end. Thank you so much for your patience with how long this finale took, and for everyone who reached out and made sure I was alive and didn't give up on the show, I really appreciate it. It's been a crazy few months. I had to move, so I'm recording from a new closet. It's been a rough back half of the pandemic, and I'm looking forward to some normalcy again. Which brings us to the finale itself, which was supposed to be around two hours. Then it got out of hand, and I couldn't edit information out because the history gets so sketchy, and we need every detail possible. Otherwise, there's a giant question mark where we can't have one. So I'd go put an anecdote back in, reorganize, expand another section, resulting in a two-parter that's... This is going to be a very long series. I did not mean for this to happen. I admittedly got swept up into every aspect of this story. Frida's personality, Mexico, and what she was trying to accomplish with her paintings, putting herself in her work to a sometimes uncomfortable degree. I don't know that I've ever put more of myself into something as this series, whether it's trying to articulate a feeling, tell an embarrassing story, or talk about my lifelong obsession with Louis Gossett Jr. I don't believe what I'm seeing. I wanted to put so much into this that I'd be more okay with walking away at the end, without worrying if I missed an obscure academic journal so we could have learned something we didn't need to learn, but I'm glad we did. And it took a while for me to realize I was subconsciously trying to approach this series like I think Frida would, if she were telling someone else's story. Frida had a difficult time finishing paintings for her entire career, getting to the place where she could make that last touch and say, I'm done, I said what I wanted to say. She would hold on to paintings for years before putting the brush down. So I guess that's what I'm prepared to do. Emotionally, I guess, is to put the brush down on this series and walk away. It's weird what happens with each series, how I react to the process and in taking so much information in a concentrated area, and it's arguably, depending on who you ask, that isn't me, slightly unhealthy. Most of the fun in the show for me is trying to build out the universe as it was, to be able to escape a bit and be part of these worlds as they're happening, something my therapist tells me is an avoidance strategy, which is why I pay him so much. And then halfway through a series, I realize that I've subconsciously adopted elements of the story into my life. With Pollock, I'd be figuring out his relationships with Stella, Sandy, and Arloy, issues with the Works Progress Administration, and then by episode 5, I was like, I might be drinking too much whiskey. I'd have a, a decently poured bourbon or two while doing the research, then a little top-off to decompress before bed. It was something I became acutely aware of. Then, during Caravaggio, it was the sizable amount of Italian food and some, some red wine I was consuming. And then about four months and 21-ish pounds later, I'm at some hole-in-the-wall Italian restaurant in West Hollywood. I've got some nice lower back sweat working, I'm chatting up the ladies, telling stories, trying not to burp up the asabuco in three glasses of Chianti I just had. My teeth are all purple like some gross cardinal nephew, not proud of the fact that I've turned into a bloated Orson Welles. Ah, the French champagne. 
has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. And then I kind of come to a few months later, and my YouTube ads are in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. I'm crying at the airport again, and I'll rush to my phone to write a reminder to sandwich in a few dick jokes around topics like the atrocities of the Spanish Civil War and let everyone know that I had more than one imaginary friend because Frida was okay with telling the world about hers. The only thing I didn't bring into the process this time was tequila, because of all of my 20s. And there is actually a point to this, and it's a flaw in the show, because with that approach, objectivity becomes even more important and can be a problem. I've tried to be as objective as possible the entire way, and I was not successful. There are these little moments of hidden biases that would pop out every now and then, things I didn't clock at the time, but when revisiting some of the research to be able to tie into this episode, I'll notice right away, oh, I just glossed over that part. A good example is I should have pushed way more on how Frida put Natalia Trotsky in the same position she was in, having her husband's affairs be played out right in front of her face, and how much that must suck. Frida knows more than anybody how bad that feels. That's a glaring hypocrisy to not address, and I'm joking around about Trotsky's old balls. Granted, old balls are objectively hilarious, but we need to have compassion and old balls. It's not like I'm shaming Frida or anything, because who the hell am I? And as far as decisions go, I might have done the exact thing in her shoes. Make Russian Colonel Sanders' eyes roll back in his head. You heard the last episode. I was clearly on board with the situation. I was invested. It's more acknowledging the Natalia situation is a reality. Even though this is Frida's story, other people are involved. Her desires and actions have consequences. And while Frida is resilient and someone who's evolved into a modern-day symbol of strength and independence, she's a human being. She makes decisions for reasons that are sometimes difficult to understand and is vulnerable to the same traps and hazards in life that we all are. For how the rest of this story unfolds, there are moments when we'll be spending a lot of time focusing on Frida's humanity as we explore quite a bit of her life that people tend to not talk about and attempt to maintain some sort of objectivity as we navigate a shit show of uncomfortable topics. So if we need to break up, if our historical love affair with Frida Kahlo has to end, let's pick our story up and explore way more of this world than we need to, or was originally planned because I couldn't bring myself to fully let go and not put it down until we're ready for closure and to say our goodbyes. At which point, I fully expect to fall into a deep depression, drinking many copiosas of brown liquor, staring at my own erection in the mirror, giving it a real sad waggle, or what I like to call the grieving process. So let's do this. Last episode was quite a ride. We started off with a pet eagle named Gertrudis Cacablanca, and then ended with Frida and Christina being arrested for the assassination of Leon Trotsky. They were taken into custody on suspicion of his murder and attempted murder for the Sikeros-led shooting. There was an assumption that the two events had to be connected in a larger conspiracy. 
When the cops came to arrest the sisters, they looted the house and stole a bunch of paintings, a few of Diego's suits, and a clock for some reason, before trashing the place, looking for some sort of evidence, and there was none. Frida was interrogated for 12 hours, and her and Christina were kept in jail for two days, while Isolde and Antonio Jr. were left home alone, unattended and without food. The sisters were finally set free when the police accepted that Frida and Christina weren't responsible for Trotsky's assassination. Solid police work. The man we know as Jacques Mornard, aggressive giver of flowers, was still in police custody with an obviously interesting story to tell, and there was no information on how many times they slammed his head against the table until he started talking, but we can guess it was a number above zero. Which begs the question, if he's not Jacques Mornard, who the hell is this guy? Jacques Mornard was born Ramon Mercader in Barcelona a few years after Frida was born. Mercader's story is, I'd say it's largely a story about a boy and his mommy, as it usually is. Caridad Mercader, Ramon's mother, was Cuban-born and made her way to Spain where she met and married Ramon's father, a wealthy industrialist. They were a rich and successful family. They'll have other kids besides Ramon, who we don't need to know about, or her husband and his father for that matter. They're bit players in this tender mother and son tale of global assassination. The well-to-do and society family of Mercaderes had a scandalous turn of events that put their glitzy social circles in a tizzy. Carrie Dodd made the rare decision to divorce her husband because he wouldn't stop going to brothels and she couldn't stand to be around the local rich people anymore, her peers at the time, who she now saw as fascists. The tipping point for her was, and I think this is understandable, was when Carrie Dodd was institutionalized against her will and given forced electroshock therapy. She said the bougie people and their laws were complicit, that the societal structure had failed her, and she doesn't sound wrong. Her imprisonment and electroshock therapy was to treat Carrie Dodd's affliction. Of what, you might ask? The stated medical affliction is that she wasn't having as much sex with her husband as he wanted, which explains the brothels. So her treatment was to cure her sexual dysfunction. And when you really bottom line it, it sounds like they kidnapped and electrocuted her and people she thought were her friends didn't do shit about it. They closed their curtains and kept their mouths shut. Those experiences and her utter contempt for a rich and selfish society was the catalyst for joining the local Communist Party, where little Ramon was raised, learning as Carrie Dodd's protege from a young age as she became a high-up communist leader. The NKVD, the Soviet spy agency, had a significant presence in Spain, especially after the recent civil war and now with World War II, and throughout major cities like Paris, and under Carrie Dodd's careful watch, Ramon was trained in espionage by the Soviets, like it's a family business. Before you know it, because they grow up so fast, Ramon's a young man who thinks he's fighting as a communist hero on behalf of Spain, when he's really acting as an agent for the Soviet NKVD's interests, spying on Trotskyites because his mom said he should. There were quite a few Stalinist plots to assassinate Trotsky. We know that from the Sakharos attack. And after that attack failed, Mercader was assigned to infiltrate Trotsky's circle as a lone assassin, 
It's logistically easier, it's more organic, and takes fewer resources. It's old-school tradecraft, and it's incredibly dangerous. Using the Jacques Mornard cover, acting as a Parisian student, Mercader became friends with Sylvia Agiloff. When Frida came to Paris, Jacques developed the plan to seduce Frida in Paris as a way to get closer to Trotsky and Coyoacan when she returned. Mercader's crazy flower stunt was a murder plot, not the aggressive tactics of a horny guy. I guess it's a mix of both. If you're willing to use sex to facilitate murder, you probably have issues detangling those two concepts. Frida told him to piss off, so now the backup plan was in play, seducing Sylvia Agiloff, Trotsky's personal secretary. It's a little unclear how he pulled off the name change to Frank Jackson when everyone knew him as Jacques. Something about using a fake passport so he wouldn't have to join the military. I don't know. It sounds immediately sketchy. He also spelled Jackson wrong. He forgot the K. New Frank Jackson story has some holes in it. And I hate to sound blamey and hindsight argue an assassination conspiracy. I just think Sylvia could have asked a few follow-up questions and not invited him to stay with her boss in Mexico. We all know what happens next. Uh, Frida was suspected, and when her and Christina were finally released from jail, she was in rough shape. I doubt they treated her well, and she was sick. She, there's no great way to describe what was happening. Her body is just overall failing. Diego was up in San Francisco, painting another mural, after his daring escape, and he was panicking over Frida's arrest and declining health. The doctors in Mexico didn't really know what to do. She was getting conflicting advice on surgeries. They couldn't figure out her weight loss, lack of energy... So Diego reached out to Dr. Alesser to get advice on Frida's behalf. I believe without her knowing, but I can't confirm that. But we do know she was hesitant to involve Diego in her needs. She wanted to handle this on her own. The other aspect of this is I think Diego used this interaction as an excuse to lobby Dr. Alesser to convince Frida to take him back, and the sales pitch wasn't subtle. Alessa wrote Frida a letter and said she should come up to San Francisco, let him figure out what was going on medically because he didn't think the treatment she was getting in Mexico made sense, and while you're here, since it's convenient, talk to Diego. He said that Frida should reflect on what she wanted, to see if there was a way that she and Diego could live together under some sort of circumstances. They loved each other and this clearly wouldn't be a traditional spousal situation, not that it ever was. I think Dr. Alesser knew exactly how bad Frida's health would end up being, and having Diego there for her, at least financially, emotionally too, as long as he could still have sex with American tourists, was better than the alternative. His overall message was something along the lines of, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. I know this sounds shitty, but he kinda has a point. She just spent three months in the hospital where the doctors attached her chin to some sort of contraption that hung her from the ceiling like she was a wheel of cheese in an Italian market. She was degenerating across the board from her twisting foot to her liver from the scary amounts of liquor she was drinking, not eating well, and her future, a livable future, would be expensive and starting over is a crazy gamble. Frida weighed her options, her possible futures, and in September of 1940, she flew to San Francisco, where Dr. Alesser and Diego met her at the airport. 
She wasn't agreeing to marry Diego yet, even though he'll ask multiple times. It's just not a decision she can make in Mexico, somewhat in a vacuum. This initial step to her reconciliation was born partly, I think, out of prudence and caution. I'm not sure there was really any other choice here. Being able to support herself as a professional artist is more of a possibility now, though not a given, and that possibility could dry up in six months. Then what? Not to mention that her medical bills will only get worse and he is one of the few people willing and able to pay for her to get the best of all the comically bad treatment options. And Frida does love Diego, to an extent that I don't understand. It's this intense and almost existential love that will grow over time. On the other hand, she doesn't trust Diego as far as she can throw him, which I think we can agree, for many reasons, is not far. Frida embraces the man-child side of Diego to a much higher degree now. She almost loves him more like a child she can care for than as a husband, but she also loves him as a husband too. At this stage of the game, I'm sure it's completely unnecessary to get into how intertwined their feelings and codependencies are. My not-a-psychiatrist opinion is, if she loves Diego more like a son, she's protecting herself against the pain of loving him like a husband. Those betrayals of the affairs don't have the same impact. For his part, Diego loves to be babied. He would talk like a little boy and pout. So when Diego's mommied, establishing that dynamic, he doesn't need to feel as bad when he cheats. He's more of a, a naughty little boy, which is very cringeworthy. Once Frida settled into San Francisco, Dr. Alessar examined her and said she didn't need any major surgeries, not yet anyway, and she didn't have tuberculosis of the bones like the doctors in Mexico believed, which I thought was bullshit, but TB of the bones is an actual thing and was a cause for panic back then. Dr. Alessar determined the real issue was Frida had a savage bacterial infection in her kidneys, was anemic, malnourished, and dehydrated. I got the sense this was an alcohol-related issue, or poor health exacerbated by how much she was drinking. You're going to get pretty sick if a UTI travels to your kidneys and you're treating it by drinking a bottle of brandy a day, stressed out of your mind as your friends are being assassinated. Frida's I'm only having one beer a day lie could now be confirmed by the doctor. With her system being flushed with fluids and nutrients, she's abstaining from alcohol under Dr. Alessar's orders, who kept her in the hospital for a month. Diego did visit consistently in the beginning, accompanied by friends he'd made in San Francisco so they could meet Frida. He stopped by frequently until he got busy again, and then he disappeared. The general consensus is that he was introducing as many new friends as he could so they could keep Frida company and he could go do his own thing. Early on in Frida's hospital stay, Diego brought a young German friend of his named Heinz Bergruen. Heinz was Jewish and recently escaped Nazi Germany. Heinz was 25 years old and already well-respected in American art circles. Right now, he's the public relations chair for the Golden Gate International Exposition that was going on, and he'll eventually be an art collector and dealer in New York. He's described as a, quote, slender youth with large, seductive eyes, a fragile, poetic beauty, and an almost feminine, romantic quality, unquote. 
I hope everyone realizes where this is going because that's where we're headed and I'm thrilled about it. Freed is going to put this kid to work, and so we can position ourselves into the right sexual headspace. We went from current Brad Pitt with Trotsky to now Robert Pattinson in like 2009, when he was knee-deep in the Twilight movies. Beautiful. This is the skin of a killer, Bill. As they were about to walk into Frida's hospital room, Diego turned to Heinz. From Heinz, quote, I will never forget the way he looked at me just before we went into Frida's room, unquote. Diego was deadly serious in his warning of the true danger the young man was about to face through those doors. He said that Frida was a very beguiling woman, and Heinz was at risk of being captivated by her, kind of like a Venus flytrap with a vagina that will steal Heinz's essence. He didn't say that part, that just sounds like what he's saying. In Diego's defense, because I do want to be more objective, that's not a crazy interpretation, knowing Frida. And I'm not saying she should be criticized for asserting her sexuality and what she wants. It's more that Diego knows this 25-year-old with raging hormones doesn't have a shot. If Frida wants to, she's going to ragdoll this kid until she's bored and Heinz won't know what month it is. Stupid in love. And to defend Diego again, that's more or less what happens. They opened the hospital door, and immediately after Heinz walked into the room, it took all of two seconds before, per Heinz, quote, There was a click. She was stunning, just as beautiful as in her paintings. I stayed and Rivera went away. I visited Frida every day for the month that she was in the hospital. The risk of discovery only heightened the intensity of our being together. For rather wild people, and Frida was a very wild, passionate person, Danger gave an added incentive, unquote. That added incentive and heightened risk Heinz is referring to came from the hospital door not having a lock, meaning anybody, including Diego, could walk in at an uh, inconvenient time. A sexual relationship with Diego might be functionally over, besides a few one-offs, but that doesn't mean Frida's done having ridiculous amounts of sex. With Dr. Alessar's treatment, which focused primarily on making sure Frida wasn't excessively drinking liquor and only eating candy, and Heinz's generous bedside manner, Frida came around, and with renewed energy, her and Heinz's sexual tension was boiling over, too close to Diego in San Francisco for anybody's comfort. This is an issue, because they're not stopping. And out of the hospital, Frida doesn't have a built-in excuse to be away from Diego to see Heinz. Not if she wants to give the impression she's working on her marriage, until the ideal opportunity popped up out of nowhere. Frida and Diego were good friends with his biographer, Bertram Wolfe, and his wife, Ella. Frida and Ella have been friends for years. She's a Lucienne Block sort of friend. A number of the letters I read were to and from Ella. I just forgot to mention her name. Bertram Wolfe's exclusive biography of Diego had just been published, so everyone who knows Diego is dying to see how they'd be portrayed in the definitive history of the great maestro from a known communist historian. Wolfe wrote the biographies of Trotsky, Stalin, and Lenin, so this was a big deal. Lupe Marin, Diego's ex-wife, read the biography as well, paying particular attention to the parts where she was discussed. Eventually, Lupe reached the passage where Wolf said that her and Diego were living together 
for a time as an unmarried couple. And Lupe freaked out because that's a scarlet letter in Mexico. You can't just live with a man. It's sullying her reputation. And Lupe said this is defamation of character because it's technically not true. Some guy married them before everyone knew they were married or something. I don't know. She just needs to remember that guy's name. I guess she forgot. It was a while ago. It's all very confusing. Lupe was so pissed about what she thought was Wolf calling her basically a filthy whore and sinner within the mindset of the time in a predominantly Catholic country that she sued Bertram Wolf and his editor in New York. And Frida was pissed off at her because she thought Lupe was actively contributing to her and Diego's issues and thought Lupe's lawsuit was nothing more than a scheme and, quote, all Lupe is interested in is money and scandal, unquote. Frida was fired up about this, saying things like, she doesn't want us to get back together, this has to stop sometime and you won't do it, it's all very dramatic. So Frida volunteered to travel to New York and testify against Lupe in her defamation case. Another way to look at this is, that lawsuit is kinda stupid, and Frida could give a shit less, but it does make for a convenient pretext to be alone with Heinz, thousands of miles away really wear him out for a bit before settling back into life with Diego. And I didn't see any court transcripts, so, you know, who knows. Now we have to figure out the logistics of how this would go down. Heinz couldn't up and volunteer to accompany her for no reason, like he's selflessly escorting an old man across a busy street. Diego may be distracted with work and not paying attention to Frida's hospital visitor schedule, but that conversation's not going well. Diego's an asshole, not an idiot. Frida's solution was to have Heinz leave a day before, and he snuck out of San Francisco without Diego knowing, and waited at a station they'd prearranged. And when Frida arrived the next day, they got on the same train and made their cross-country trip through Gringolandia, sharing stories, listening to records, and making the train cars smell like there's no way two people didn't just have sex in here. For the next two months, Heinz and Frida stayed together at the Barbizon Plaza Hotel. Each morning, their breakfast was delivered by an automatic dumbwaiter-style breakfast elevator, which Frida laughed at for being absurd and unnecessary. Quote, God, these Americans, everything in this country is mechanized, even breakfast. As Heinz got their food and coffee ready, Frida would read him the newspaper, stopping often to crack up because American reporters demanded to have their photographs in the newspaper underneath their headlines, something that wasn't done in Mexico. But with the lack of space in newspapers, the photos were just of their floating heads. She thought this was an obnoxious idea, poorly executed. From Frida, quote, Look at those crazy heads, unquote. They hung out with Julian Levy and partied, fought and made up, had lots of sex. Heinz fell in love and treated the relationship much more seriously than Frida did. She wanted to spend time on her own in the city, raise hell with Lucienne, and Heinz was getting needy. There is an age and life experience gap between her and Heinz, a substantial one. He would later say Frida was a little cavalier with the relationship and his feelings. And on the other hand, 
you're a 25-year-old man, pull it together. All roads were leading back to Diego. We know that, Frida knew that, Heinz was either too in love or too inexperienced to understand. It wasn't going to be Heinz who could undo the tangled wires of those two. While having fun, her brain is multitasking, analyzing that messy relationship math when you're considering getting back together with an ex, weighing the creature comforts of someone you know versus starting over from scratch with someone new, finances, knowing all the same people. It's really complicated. Anita Brenner, her friend who went on the trip with the propeller plane that almost crashed a bunch of times, she wrote to Frida and gave some good advice. She told Frida that her biggest mistake was eternally giving all of herself to Diego. He is the type of person who wants what he can't have. It's about the chase and the conquering. So when she gives all of herself, he gets bored and distracted by whatever young tourist or model who catches his attention and takes Frida for granted. She thought Frida could do perfectly well on her own and didn't want Frida to lose her identity and independence. Don't give everything. Her friends really were awesome. From Anita's letter, quote, It seems to me, for you, it would be best to be coquettish. Don't let yourself be tied down completely. Do something with your own life, for that is what cushions us when the blows and falls come. The blow is not as strong if there is something which allows one to say, Here I am. I am worth something. I am not so completely identified as someone else's shadow. Basically what I'm saying is that one depends only on oneself, and from there must come everything that is needed to be able to put up with things and do things, for good humor, for everything. Unquote. I got the sense Anita was trying to gently nudge Frida in the I'm a real rich bitch direction, capable and better off on her own. Forget about that guy. That was never happening, but Anita's advice may have given Frida more confidence in establishing ground rules for another marriage with Diego. I think that Frida knew her spine, her foot that was twisting out and misaligned, pelvis, everything was getting worse. There's no way she'd be able to afford the care she needed on her own. And without getting into details yet, she's more right than she knows. And Diego does adore her more than he does anyone, as long as he's not required to be faithful sexually. He respects her intellectually, is supportive of her professionally, and accepts her criticisms with his work, something that we can't discount. We're still living in machismo-filled 1940 Mexico, 13 years away from women's right to vote. Then there's her family. Guillermo can't support himself. Christy, little Antonio Jr. and Isolda, the financial security and futures of her loved ones are a consideration. And I know I'm really hammering this home and possibly overanalyzing, but it's a major decision point in Frida's life. And it's a tough one to understand without digging into what could have gone into her choice after all he's done to her. And we still don't know if he's got that gross tear duct infection thing still happening, all swollen and full of pus. It's disgusting. On November 23, 1940, Frida sent a cable from New York to Dr. Alesser and said she was returning to San Francisco and agreed, with conditions, to remarry Diego. That means rules, second marriage parameters, not all of which will be abided by. At the end of November, 1940, Frida made her way back to San Francisco. She had Dr. Lesser set her up in a hotel while she confirmed with Diego 
in person that he understood what the rules would be. He's a child, so you gotta treat him like one. First, she would not be attending the upcoming mural unveiling in San Francisco. It's off the table. Don't even bring it up, because she didn't want to have to see, quote, Paulette and all those other bitches, unquote. So before anything else, just know I'm not going to your stupid thing. Number two, moving forward, she would support herself, and they would split their household expenses. Financially, they would be equals. And finally, there would be no sexual relationship between them. Frida said a sexual relationship would be impossible because she would see flashes of the woman he's been with going through her mind. Totally reasonable, considering one of them is her little sister. Diego was so desperate to have Frida back that he agreed to the rules, again, not all of which will be fully adhered to by either of them. It's easy to agree to rules in the beginning, only to get sucked back into the same old drama, intense love, mutual admiration, and relationship chaos they were famous for. On December 8, 1940, they were married again in San Francisco by Municipal Judge George Schoenfeld, because we might as well know that guy's name, in another low-key courtroom civil ceremony. They didn't have a reception, and shortly after the ceremony was over, Diego went back to work, where he took his shirt off to get ready to paint, and his assistants and everyone that came to watch him work saw Frida's magenta lipstick marks on his undershirt. Not a great start to following the rules, though that one mostly will stay intact. Their sexual relationship is basically over. Some friends said it never really existed. I don't know if that's true. It might be oversimplifying a marriage where sex played less of a role than advertised. With each other. Everybody else was fair game. They spent the next few weeks together until Frida decided she was done with Gringolandia and wanted to be in Mexico with her family for Christmas. She traveled back to Mexico, accompanied by none other than Jean White. What a blast from the past. She was the gringa lady whose unflattering portrait Frida painted a few episodes ago. Frida still didn't like Jean, who complained the entire trip, and she thought Jean's two most dominant character traits were, quote, indiscretion and sloth, unquote. Diego wouldn't come back until February, once the Mexican authorities were convinced he had nothing to do with Trotsky's murder and when his work was done. They would live now full-time at the Casa Azul in Coyoacan. The San Angel houses would be used more as a studio and storage. He brought back one of his American assistants, Emmy Lou Packard, who Frida loved. Emmy Lou was great. She'd live with them for the next year or so. The two of them would refer to Diego as Nino Grande, Big Baby, and she helped Frida make sure he didn't fall apart. A job made tougher by the fact that now he was a full-blown hypochondriac and couldn't be convinced he wasn't dying on a daily basis. And for what seems like the ninth or tenth time I've said this so far, life returned to normal at the Blue House. They would wake up and have a lazy breakfast in the sun. Emmy Lou and Frida would read the news out loud to Diego, who refused to read now because he was afraid he was going blind. And Emmy Lou and Diego would head out to work until their late lunch that Frida and the staff at the house would have ready. Diego wasn't drinking because he thought he was dying, so Frida would shrug her shoulders and drink 2 p.m. cocktails that made her, quote, animated. And it did take Diego some convincing to be happy about living in Mexico City again, before he begrudgingly accepted domestic life. 
He complained for a few weeks until he bought some pre-Columbian idols that he really liked and had a meal of duck mole again, one of his favorites, eating so much duck mole that he got sick because he lacks self-discipline in all areas. The rest of Frida's family settled in around them. Guillermo moved to an apartment nearby so they could look after him. Christy and the kids are living at one of the houses or an apartment. It's always changing. Matilda Jr. and her family are still living in their gauche, European-style house, and Adriana lives somewhere, presumably. Who cares? All is right with the world. Frida is putting in a substantial amount of work to make this the home she wants. She's committed to her decision. She put in extra cabinets and platforms for Diego's pre-Columbian idols. That'll shut him up for a bit. She remodeled and retiled the kitchen, choosing the blue, white, and yellow tiles, redid the dining room with pine wood floors, and decorated the walls with still lifes and indigenous masks. There was always something she needed, even if it was just an excuse to be out among people. So Frida spent a lot of time in the markets, buying earthenware plates and mugs, fresh flowers, toys and pinatas for her nieces and nephews, religious figurines, even though her commitment to Catholicism was spotty at best. There was even a little action figure of Judas, which she loved. And for a minute, I couldn't figure out why Judas would get his own action figure in the Jesus toy line, given, you know, what we know about that particular story. Then I remembered in the 80s when I was a kid, they made He-Man and Skeletor action figures, and I had both, so it totally makes sense. The shopkeepers and artisans all loved when Frida came to the markets because she'd always pay more than they were asking and took time to speak to them as people to learn about who they were. Her favorite marketplace artisan was a nice old woman named Carmen Caballero Sevilla. Sevilla was the person in the marketplace who made the premium Judas action figurines. That was her expertise. And Sevilla was building a specially made Judas skeleton for Frida, Frida designed the little hat, Carmen designed the skeleton. One day in the markets, some guy got mad at Carmen Sevilla, and he punched Sevilla in the mouth, knocking out her two front teeth. So now this poor old woman has no front teeth. You can't do that. You can't punch old ladies in the mouth. And when Frida came to pick up her special Judas, after paying Sevilla more money than she was charging, Frida presented Sevilla with something else. It was a gift. Inside the package was a set of gold teeth to replace the lost front two. From Carmen Sevilla, quote, The Nina Fredita was the one who spoiled me the most. She paid a little more than the maestro did. She did not like to see me toothless. Unquote. It's a generous act on Frida's part. There's no denying it. But there's more to it than that. Teeth were a personal issue for Frida. You'll notice that most photos of her are with her mouth closed, or if she's smiling, she'd cover her mouth. Dental hygiene back then wasn't great in general, and add in all the candy she ate, a few of her teeth were missing, some were rotting, and she had a bunch of gold caps to cover them, so Frida would never want Carmen Sevilla to feel insecure about her smile. After choosing food for the midday meal, she'd return to oversee its preparation for friends, visitors from out of town, whoever showed up. They'd have chicken, fresh fruit, tequila, more duck mole for Diego to shove into his face hole, pulque, 
Frida and Emmy Lou would walk around the gardens, sit in the sun on the patio and talk, and there were an obscene number of animals. Understanding Frida's need to be surrounded by life and living things that she can care for, we can't overlook the animals in her life, and after the remarriage, she was overseeing the equivalent of a small zoo. There were the hairless dogs, and not just a few, she now had like a pack of hairless dogs. There were trained doves flying everywhere, like she's a magician or in a John Woo movie. A chipmunk, sometimes in a cage, more often running loose in the house. Granzino the deer, Gertrudis Cacablanca, the monkeys, including Caimito de Guayabal, who was touch and go for a while with his own health issues. He had pretty bad pneumonia. We almost lost Caimito. His little monkey breathing was labored. He was sad and had no energy. Frida was worried. She wrote to a friend, quote, He was about to drop dead, but sulfanilamide made him better, unquote. It's kind of a bizarre threshold of detail to be in someone's life when you're discussing the medication their monkey took in order to survive pneumonia. There were a few times making the last episode when I thought I broke my brain. I was wrong. I think this was it. Having a 20-minute internal debate about whether to include the monkey pneumonia information or not. That's how bad this gets deep into a series. I'm pacing around my apartment going, well, people need to know about the pneumonia. It's Kaimito. He's part of this this story as much as anybody, but it can't go 27 hours, so if I include the monkey pneumonia stuff, I won't have time to include the story about the fetus in a jar, but how can I not include that? Then it dawns on me that I'm the only person in control of this entire process. Both stories need to be included, the fetus in a jar story comes later, and there's no time limit to any of these episodes, that's just a thing I made up, and I just wasted 20 minutes debating myself when I could have been reading more about the animals, like the two turkeys they had at the house who liked to have sex in the garden in front of everybody during lunch. From Emmy Lou, quote, the male would do a macho dance in front of the female, who paid no attention. When he'd start drumming his feet on the ground loudly, she would pay attention. Finally, she would lower herself to the ground and spread her wings. He'd jump on her back and drum with his wings outspread. <laughs> then it was all over. Unquote. I read that and I was like, what the fuck is happening? How did we get to the turkey sex part of the show? And not just a reference to sex, a step-by-step -step description of the turkey sex, so easily recalled because it happened so much. Obviously, I got curious. If you are one of the people who went to YouTube during the last episode and watched the videos of World War I shell shock victims, I applaud your curiosity and genuinely apologize for ruining your day. To make up for it, I'll point out that there are, I would say, a staggering number of videos from people who took the time to record and upload extended clips of turkeys having sex to YouTube. It's a real niche area of interest for people. They're pretty hilarious, and it seems like the turkeys are enjoying themselves. It's not like with ducks. 
For those of you who don't want to go to YouTube to watch turkeys have sex because you either A, don't have a burning desire to see every version of the miracle of life, or B, believe the amount of time someone took to record and upload turkey sex videos is a precious waste of the minutes we have in our cosmically brief time on Earth and don't want to make a similar life mistake, I wholeheartedly disagree with that perspective, but I hear you. And if you're the type of person who doesn't really know where you sit on this issue and honestly weren't expecting this decision to be part of your day, don't worry. We're going to listen right now. It's the ideal solution to a problem I unnecessarily created. In a not at all new anymore and certainly jumped the shark segment of the show I like to call... And now, Michael sits next to a crackling fire, sips a hot toddy and makes everyone listen to turkeys having sex for an unreasonably long period of time.
As always, that segment is brought to you by Ruth Kligman and the intense sexual arousal she felt at the sight of Beethoven's forehead. And that just wasn't one pairing of turkeys. I got that from a video I found of a bunch of turkeys in this crazy turkey orgy happening on some dirt road. There were like eight or nine of them going at it. It got hard to keep track of numbers. I won't lie, I'm pretty tired. And I'll filibuster for a few more seconds so people can iron out the details on their fast-forward situation before we talk about the rest of the animals at the Casa Azul. The rest of the animals included a large, extremely drunk parrot who liked to relax on the patio, drinking tequila and beer, and had a filthy bird mouth, telling people to fuck off and would squawk things like, No me pasa la cruda! I can't get over this hangover, and when he was out of his cage, would run around the ground biting people on the ankles. And last, but certainly not least, there was Bonito, another parrot who was Frida's favorite pet. When she had to lie down during the day because her back was too sore or her energy was sapped and she needed rest, Bonito would go underneath the covers and snuggle next to Frida while she slept. During those big lunches outside, Bonita would hop all over the table and give the guests kisses, a far cry from drunkenly biting their ankles. Bonito didn't like tequila and beer. Bonito's vice, everybody has one, was butter. He went crazy for butter. Diego and Frida would set up an obstacle course on the table with cups, bowls, pots with handles, and Bonito would maneuver through the course until he reached the butter and inhaled it, and everybody would cheer, Bonita would get excited and give people more bird kisses. This was a new beginning for Frida, and she did what she wanted. When it came to how she wanted to spend her free time, she didn't feel committed to doing anything Diego wanted to do just because he wanted to do it like go to Detroit. Oh, and those nights out at the symphony at the Palace of Fine Arts with Lupe, Christina, whichever woman Diego was having an affair with, not happening anymore. That was Diego's thing, and Frida had no interest. She never did. This falls under second marriage rule number one. I'm not doing your stupid thing. When Diego wanted to go to the symphony, poor Emmy Lou would go in Frida's place, wearing one of Frida's Tawana dresses. That part's weird. And Emmy Lou had to listen to Diego mansplain the politics behind World War II and music theory for three hours. It sounds unbearable. On those nights, Frida would instead go out on her own. She'd go to boxing matches, pulquerias to try different pulque brews, or to Garibaldi Plaza to listen to the mariachi bands drinking what she called her cocktailitos and cocktailazos. She would smash a bunch of tacos and pay the mariachi bands extra to compete against each other to see who could play her favorite songs the best. I would say she is mostly out doing this alone, having these nights to herself, keeping in mind the, oh, everyone was busy, so I just went and had some drinks and tacos in Garibaldi Square and watched the mariachis, is a timeless excuse for when you don't want your insanely jealous, gun-toting husband to know about the dashing young Spanish refugee named Ricardo you were dating. At least a few of these nights she had to be out with Ricardo, otherwise how would they carry out their torrid affair? And I'm still using the term affair, even though both of them agreed they would have separate sex lives, they're still technically married and neither of them are genuinely cool with the affairs. Mostly, they joke about them to keep it light. 
like when Frida made fun of Diego for using a model in one of his murals because her boobs were too big and they were distracting to the viewer. He said, they're not that big. And Frida replied, quote, that's because you always see them when she's lying down. Other times, the affair stung more. They were the primary cause of their big fights, and Diego would do things to twist the knife, like joke around with people and say Frida hated the song El Patate because there was a line in it that said, I don't love you, I love your sister. I don't think that went over too well. Frida wasn't amused. She described her and Diego's dynamic to Dr. Alesser in a July 15, 1941 letter. Quote, the remarriage functions well. And it was functioning well, considering. It was difficult and codependent and full of drama, but it functioned more or less as Frida anticipated it would. After she was finished overseeing the daily activities at the house, Frida would put on jeans and a denim jacket and walk into her studio alone, without a crowd or prying eyes, to paint the thing that she knows best. The painting Self-Portrait with Braid was finished in 1941 and helps give some more color to this new phase in Frida's life, her remarriage to Diego, which gives some freedom, though not without cost. It provides support for her and her family, professional and emotional support, unless the emotion is sadness over Diego not being a full-time husband, then we're going to have to go ahead and bottle that up, really push that pain towards something productive. And that's not my advice. That was Dr. Alesser's. He said Diego was going to cheat. We all know it. Now channel that emotion to your paintings. It's not the worst advice. It's not great either. It's complicated. It's got twists and turns that tie you up emotionally like a pretzel, like Frida painted her hair in this self-portrait. She's in Amerindian Braids, How Diego Likes It Best, and representing her femininity, the opposite of her short, cropped hair, though it's all twisted up with random strands poking out, frazzled and unruly. Around her neck is a beaded Amerindian choker that looks kind of like a shackle, locking her in place, but also protecting her from the sharp plants, with leaves that look like jagged blades, vines that could strangle. The color is muted, not nearly as bright and bold as we're used to seeing, and the look on Frida's face is a quiet determination. She will survive this too. It won't be perfect, but she'll make it work. Her feelings of personal isolation were radically increased by her inability to be politically active during World War II, a time she knew the world needed any help it could get. 1941 brought political upheaval and worldwide fear as World War II escalated with Germany attacking the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa, which opened the eastern front of the war in Europe. Two years earlier, as Nazi aggression was heating up, Stalin approved the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a non-aggression agreement between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union that also divided Poland between them. A pact between fascism and communism was an unexpected surprise, especially for Poland. Why Stalin trusted Hitler, who had been saying he wanted to invade and obliterate the Soviet Union since 1925, I don't know, especially because it's Hitler. Back in Coyoacan, without access to the Communist Party, who still thought Diego was a complete moron and full of shit, Diego and Frida were largely sidelined, unable to engage in the political activism they both wanted. It really drove Frida nuts. 
Her political beliefs were as important to her as being an artist, and there was little she could do without the infrastructure of the Communist Party. She can't even vote. So there they were, sitting in the house. Diego was walking around yelling about the Russian front, and Frida was writing to friends, saying that he was lonely without the party. She really means herself. She's lonely without the party. That social connection and feeling productive, helping people. She would often use Diego as a surrogate for her own emotions, almost like it was a way to express herself without coming across as weak. In addition to feelings of isolation, 1941 brought Frida more loss. Toward the end of the year, on December 15th, Frida wrote to Emmy Lou, who'd moved back to California. Quote, The little parrot Bonito died. I made a little burial for him and everything, and I cried for him since, you remember, that he was marvelous. Diego also felt very sad about it. Unquote. In the emotional aftermath of losing her favorite pet, Frida painted self-portrait with Bonito. Her butter-loving parrot is perched on her shoulder, and he's standing proudly, bright-eyed and happy, how Frida wants to remember him. Frida and Bonito are surrounded by insects and plants, caterpillars eating holes in leaves, some caterpillars are in cocoons, one is caught in a spider's web, drained of its blood, there's a butterfly at the peak of its existence, mixed in with the lush green foliage are leaves that are yellowed on the edge of wilting, there's metaphors for life and death everywhere. Frida is dressed in black, and simply, nothing ornate. No earrings or necklaces, no flowers in her hair. The dark circles under her eyes are accentuated. She hasn't been sleeping and refuses to paint away those physical effects. It's another aspect of the rawness in her approach. Wrinkles around the eyes, dark circles, signs of aging and the biological realities that come with it. As she ages, they're part of her self-portraits. Frida is in mourning. Her favorite pet, Bonito, who slept under the blanket while she rested and brought so much joy to everyone, is gone. It's the surface-level takeaway from this piece if you don't want to go deeper, if you only want to have the conversation with Frida that's easier to have. Not necessarily easy, it's easier. The sadness of losing a pet. The feeling that many of us had as children, our first encounters with death. Benito's looking all cute and goofy, so you can remember the good times, the idiosyncrasies and personality quirks that pets have that make them so special. My family, we tend to not deal well with the death of our pets. I've talked about Moke before in one of the episodes. He was our family golden retriever, who was the only dog I've ever known to show the emotion contempt. He understood commands in three different languages, ignoring all of them. Moke was the best, and collectively, as a family, we haven't done the greatest job of letting go. His ashes are still in a box on my parents' living room coffee table, with his portrait hand-painted on the outside. So now we have a box of Moke. And you know what? Every time I'm back visiting my family, I look at that box— fondly remember how lazy and uncooperative he was, and I miss the little bastard. With Frida's self-portraits, that conversation between viewer, artist, and model, the onus is on us to be willing to go where she can take us emotionally. We know what she's willing to put on canvas. The question is, do we know her enough to go the entire way?
We can sit here and talk about pets all day. After, what, ten hours and counting now? We put in the time. We know Frida to the extent that history allows. I mean, what do you tell people if they ask you, do you know about Frida Kahlo? Where do you even start? When it comes to understanding the difficult aspects of her life, beyond the present-day status and popularity she has, we know her losses and pain to an intimate degree. I am sure she loved Bonito a great deal, and he brought her comfort and joy, but the look on Frida's face, it's a profound sadness that's barely contained. She's trying to be strong, struggling to not burst into tears, as if there's something else going on behind her eyes, and if you ask her about it, she might break down. If you know Frida, you take one look at this painting, and you know it's not about a bird. A few months before Bonito died, Guillermo passed away. Most of the sources say it was a heart attack. A few said it was his epilepsy, and I honestly don't know. As Guillermo himself used to phrase the idea of death, he took his final voyage, something that he'd wanted for some time. After Matilda died, living without her wasn't the same. She was his reason for being, and he said he was ready to go nine years ago. Frida's mourning and self-portrait with Bonito comes more into focus now. The look of sadness on her face makes more sense, and Bonito, the favorite of her pets, and looking proudly, glowingly the favorite, is now possibly a metaphor for Frida herself, acknowledging she was Guillermo's favorite and grateful she could play that role in his life. Overall, there was a notable lack of information about Guillermo's passing, much less than Matilda's. She dealt with the death of her parents in two completely different ways. Grief doesn't have a playbook. Ten years from now, in 1951, Frida is finally able to paint an ex-voto devotional painting of her father, as he's standing in front of his camera looking stoically off to the side. On the bottom is a garland with writing, a common element to these types of paintings, where a statement is made about the subject. On the bottom of Frida's painting of Guillermo is written, translated from Spanish, quote, I painted my father, Wilhelm Kahlo, of Hungarian-German origin, professional artist-slash-photographer, whose nature was generous, intelligent, and polite. He was courageous, having suffered from epilepsy for 60 years, but he never stopped working and he fought against Hitler. Adoringly, his daughter Frida. Unquote. Fighting against Hitler is perhaps a bit of a stretch, and I'm not trying to besmirch Guillermo's legacy. I'm positive he hated Hitler and maybe signed some petitions. He just didn't storm the beaches of Normandy like the statement implies. With the caveat that I'm supportive of any effort someone could have made to be anti-Hitler. I just don't know how much help Guillermo would be in a machine gun nest in Paris or running a counter-intel operation against the SS. Everybody plays a different part. It's a magically real interpretation of something that's true. And if you want to start splitting hairs and be a moral authority on what technically constitutes fighting against Hitler, that's certainly a debate that would be taken up by a woman who loved her German father, isn't prone to shying away from arguments, and wanted the world to know his heart at a time when anti-German sentiment was at an all-time high. Her greatest gift to her father's legacy came posthumously, and decades later, Frida becoming an international celebrity brought new light to Guillermo Kahlo's photography. There have been books written about him, and his photographs of churches were so respected that a special volume of just those was created. 
the immigrant from Germany who wasn't even sure he would belong in his adopted home would himself go on to be part of its cultural legacy. There's one more painting from 1941 I want to talk about, but I don't want to talk about the painting itself. I want to talk about a photograph that includes the painting. It's called Me and My Parrots, and it's pretty clear what it's about. These parrots are my children, one of them is an ankle-biting drunk, this is my cigarette, and this is my I-don't-care-what-you-think-about-me face. I'll post the photo instead of the painting itself. It's of Frida and Nicholas Murray, who would come down to Mexico to visit. And if anything happened between them, which I kinda doubt given how things ended, if yeah, they're friends now who happen to share that time as part of their history, even though there's probably some sparks. In the photo, Nicholas is looking dapper in his gigantic pleated pants. There's so much material in his pants that you could tailor them and make another pair of pants. And an equally enormous neckerchief. It looks like he wrapped a tablecloth around his neck. It is an outfit that is oozing 1941 sex appeal. He's got a real silver fox thing going on. The neckerchief alone is really a sight to behold. This is back when dudes tried to get the ladies with sick neckwear. It was a different time. I'd be lying if I said the neckerchief wasn't the first thing I noticed in this photo, because my grandfather used to wear a neckerchief. In every photo of him, no matter what else he's wearing, pow! giant neckerchief, and it evidently worked on my grandmother because my dad's here. He also had an alias that he went by, my grandfather, for his hobbies of dubious legality. This is my lineage. There are oddly a boatload of fake names and aliases in my family, and it's a really long story as to why. There's even a Bobby Sagittarius with two T's. It's a disaster. The next thing that caught my eye in this photo, after taking an unexpected nostalgic trip involving my grandfather and his neckerchiefs, is the way Frida is awkwardly seated. She has her arm hooked over the back of the chair, and it's positioned like she's using the chair back as a crutch, propping herself up, which is presumably what's happening. And Nicholas is looking at her with almost a, a compassionate concern, though I may be projecting on that one. We haven't talked about Frida's back in a while. Not in great detail. The various contraptions, surgeries, and corsets have given her a number of years with moderate levels of mobility, considering the underlying issues, even if there was constant pain. She was able to travel to Paris and dry hump a chair from the ground and even dance occasionally. As her muscles were getting weaker from lack of use, with some atrophy in her right leg, her rapid weight loss from stress, the poor nutrition of someone with pretty severe alcoholism, in addition to the degenerative spine issues and her vertebrae not all being in the correct places, her spine is now really compressing onto itself. She's only able to sit down and work for about 25 minutes at a time, followed by rest, then maybe standing for a bit, and then more rest. Way back in the beginning of the series, I mentioned her body would break down in unimaginable ways. Everything before this has been an attempt to prolong the inevitable, though her borrowed time is catching up. Medically, it is a quick descent from here on out, and then stuff is going to start falling off, literally falling off. Years before Frida needs a wheelchair, she is, 
even if it's not as visible as what people immediately think of, she is a person with disabilities. Looking at the complete picture of who she was, that's somewhere my mind didn't immediately go. I didn't automatically make that connection. Her movements are restricted. She's physically unable to do a number of things artistically, even if she wanted to. She's not climbing up and down scaffolding to paint a mural for nine hours a day. She's not carving a marble block and sculpting an eight-foot statue, and that's her current physical limitations. So completing something on the scale of even the two Fridas, I'd be willing to bet wouldn't have been possible, if not soon, then by like 1946, I would say definitely not. Okay, so before we keep going, I have to peel back the curtain a little bit. Out of any episode in any series so far, these finale episodes were by far the most difficult to research. In recounting Frida's life, right around 1942 is when her biographers, across the board, changed their writing, their narrative styles, I guess. It got very confusing, and it was tough to get a sense of what happened in chronological order. Out of nowhere, they'd write about common themes in paintings, or tie a painting from 1949 to artistic influences she might have acquired in 1936, then referencing an event in 1950, and then back to 1947, it made the research a nightmare. It was this never-ending process of putting puzzle pieces together from different sections of each book and then building out the story in a way that's understandable, and it took a while to figure out why the storytelling changed now, consistently across biographers. It didn't make sense for it to be coincidence. It boils down to major gaps in information and details after 1942. If the biographers wrote purely chronologically, once 1942 hits, 90% of the book would already be written. That's kind of a crazy concept, considering Frida was arguably the most famous woman in Mexico, and gets more famous before we'll be done, and I felt like I was driving through the fog at night with my high beams on. You'll hear soon. Some of the events have to be cobbled together as an estimation. A bonkers concept considering who we're talking about. There are two phases, overlapping phases or developments that cloud over the details. Phase two won't kick in until 1946. Phase one begins now because Frida is home, and with the exception of one or two trips for medical reasons, she's not leaving. Almost by definition, a change in environment means more stuff to talk about. It's more people, interactions, new locations and scenery, all of which is giving way to a stationary environment. The sweeping epic of the last few episodes has become a more contained story, where the days, weeks, and months start to blend together. And it does impact the story itself and our perception of time. We'll be living within days and weeks in excruciating detail, and then talking about an entire year for roughly three minutes. Ironically, 1942, this pivotal year in Frida's life that begins the regression of the historical record, was also the turning point for her professionally. She often said it was the French and Gringos who were the first to recognize her and allow her to have a career as an artist. Not with any resentment, necessarily. She understood there was a sense of otherness to her that made her desirable outside of Mexico. And it would take time for her to, hopefully, be appreciated and successful at home. 
We see that recognition begin to come about in 1942 when Frida was chosen to be a founding member of the Seminario de Cultura Mexicana, a subcomponent of the Education Ministry. Its inaugural members were a collection of 25 artists and intellectuals who promoted Mexican culture through journal articles, art exhibitions, lectures. The Seminario was a good platform to build her credentials for organizations that were older and more prestigious, and it didn't hurt that the head of the group was her good friend and cachucha, Miguel Lira, now a respected writer. Alejandro, the leader of the Cachuchas, was also trying to get Frida recognition within Mexico's intellectual and cultural circles, proposing her membership into the Colegio Nacional, a more prestigious organization that included Diego and Jose Orozco. Being accepted would be a major accomplishment. As his nominees, Alejandro put forward Frida and a botanist who wrote a celebrated treatise after devoting a concerning amount of time specifically to mapping out the biodiversity of cacti in Mexico. It's the premier cacti botanist in the country. The hang-up here, both Frida and the cactus specialist, is that they were both women, and Alejandro was like, yeah, they got rejected pretty quickly, and he said the excuses for the rejections were flimsy at best, especially the botanist. There wasn't a great argument to keeping her out. Frida now has international acclaim and some cachet and respect at home, and that means financial opportunities. She is now a professional artist, and the struggle as a working artist is being able to make versions of the things she does best for other people, made more difficult because her most powerful images are of her and her own pain. Visitors would now come to Diego's studio in part to see Frida's work. It was part of the tourist attraction, and they left rarely buying anything. Being compelling doesn't equate to being profitable. Something like my birth is a powerful message, and it's an image that maybe not everyone wanted on their walls. Frida paints what she knows best— Herself, it's the source of her most incredible images. Doing that for someone else because they want a portrait of their sibling or spouse by its nature will be a disruptive force to her process and inspiration. And Frida has difficulty with this transition and it's affecting business. One of her early big projects was a commission for the government to create portraits of five notable women in Mexican history. They were to be hung in the National Palace. Women like Leona Vicario and Josefa Ortiz de Dominguez, both important figures in the Mexican War for Independence. Vicario was rich and helped bankroll the War for Independence, and she was one of the first female journalists in the country. Josefa Ortiz, her husband, was the regional judge appointed by the Viceroy of New Spain. Their giant house was where her and her husband helped plan the original conspiracy to split from Spain, where they stockpiled guns and munitions. She was willing to go to prison for this, and she did go to prison. Those paintings for the National Palace were never completed. Frida couldn't figure out how to capture the five women, or more likely, deep down, didn't want to, because while they were undeniably important women, they were kinda rich and bougie, representing the power structure the communist revolution was supposed to tear down. You could make an argument, and Frida did, that those revolutionaries that 
they had their own wealth and power in mind as the primary reason to rebel. They weren't the average Mexican woman in the market, making a home for her children while working God knows how many hours because everybody needs food. The women Frida thought were the real heroes. She couldn't find inspiration for these portraits. She had an artistic block and was kind of a dick about the whole thing. In a letter to Dr. Alesser, quote, Now they've got me trying to figure out what kind of cockroaches these women were, what kind of faces they had, and what kind of psychology oppressed them. So at the hour when I daub them, the public will know how to distinguish them from the vulgar and common females of Mexico, who I will tell you, in my opinion, would include more interesting and more terrific women than the group of ladies in question. Unquote. The most disappointing part of not completing this commission is that Frida wanted to use the money to buy some billy goats that she thought were cool. I'm not even kidding. We almost had more animals. Goats. She liked the feeling of their fur and the weird pungent goat smell. Then there was the still life commission for President Manuel Camacho's dining room, which was rejected because Frida made the flowers, fruit, and vegetables look undeniably like a collection of genitals. Why? Why might you ask she would do that? Because it's hilarious to think that the president of Mexico would unknowingly have a bunch of labia, maybe a cactus that looks like a penis, have that on the wall behind him while he entertains heads of state or titans of industry. Frida's still lifes are full of sexual imagery and metaphor. Sex, the pleasure of it, its role in creating life. There was an annual flower show in Mexico City, the Salon de la Flor. Throughout the 40s, Frida would contribute paintings each time, and the people who put the flower show on in an extremely Catholic country were like, yeah, thanks, Frida, at least this year's doesn't have a cervix. A few examples of her Salon de la Flor still lifes, and this is getting ahead a bit, but we're here, are her 1944 painting, Flower of Life, a real veiny, throbbing flower buried right into the blossoming leaves with a, a money shot of pollen. And then 1947, she submitted Sun and Life, another undeniably sexual and reproductive painting. There's a sun crying as it nourishes the vagina plants, one of which has what looks like a fetus inside that's crying, a celebration of life mixed with the sadness of her being unable to have children. While she's struggling to find her voice as a professional artist in 1942, either her or Diego came up with an idea that will keep him adequately distracted for the foreseeable future. It's one of those moments when, from the outside, you look at a decision made by a married couple that you know and go, huh, I wonder who was the first one to broach that subject at dinner. Personally, I think it had to have been Frida, and he jumped all over it. Diego needs distractions, otherwise he gets antsy and looks to change the status quo. If he's bored and restless, it's not a good sign. And he's also a high-end hoarder. So here's the situation. His collection of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican artifacts was getting, I would use the word, preposterous. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with collecting things. It's when you collect almost 50,000 of something in your lifetime like he did, 50,000, and you still forget to buy underwear. That's when it becomes an issue, and perhaps, just throwing it out there, the Amerindian artifacts are a surrogate for something else, and you're trying to fill some sort of void, hoping statue number... 
41,362 will make you happy. However the issue was broached, they decided they would buy a plot of land in Pedregal, even farther out of the city than Coyoacan, which was a dormant lava field that was created from thousands of years of volcanic eruptions of the nearby Xitle volcano, enriching the soil, and there's a lot of science happening somehow to make it so there's an abundance of plants and animals, even with little rainfall. It was an underdeveloped area at the time, the perfect location for building a country home that would serve as storage for Diego's collection, a farm, and setting down more roots in an area that was home to one of the older Mesoamerican cities. It's on par with a neighboring Teotihuacan. Construction began on what Diego referred to as a strange kind of ranch. Initially, they could cover the expense of yet another home. More or less, knowing their full dream for this location, a sort of temple and museum, would be an extraordinary cost. What will ultimately be called Anahuacali, Diego's grand pyramid mausoleum-type building, was ridiculously expensive. They would petition the government to help pay, saying it would be a national treasure they would donate after their deaths, and Frida even sold her apartment on Insurgentes and gave up title to another piece of land she owned to help cover the cost of the ongoing construction. And if you instinctively recoil at this idea like I do, the very notion of Frida giving something up like land to keep Diego happy, leveraging her own future to make the marriage function after all he put her through, you need to steel yourself to this entire concept. So far, we are only dipping our toes in these waters. And I don't want to run the risk of making it seem like Frida supporting this idea was for the sole purpose of keeping Diego happy. That's far from reality. Excavating Pedregal, constructing Anahuacali, it was a project designed to help secure their legacies in Mexico as part of Mexican history, not as casual observers. Pedregal would connect Frida and Diego to their rich heritage as stewards of that history and culture in the very place where it began, its brilliant marketing. So selfishly, Frida saw her legacy as tied to Diego's, and the better he's remembered, it de facto would be better for her. In 1943, Frida painted Roots, an image of her connection to the literal soil of Mexico and Pedregal. She's lying in the lava fields, propping herself up on a pillow, like it's a form of a mourning portrait, like deceased Dimas, only it's Frida on her deathbed. There are vines bursting from her chest, fed with her own blood and reaching for the lava fields to nourish the Mexican earth that did the same for her. She knows she's sacrificing for this excavation and museum. It's an expensive risk, and for an uncertain and yet-to-be-determined benefit, this could easily turn into a money pit that goes nowhere, but at least it's home. She'll sacrifice for Mexico. For what initially seems like a relatively simple image, there's a lot happening here. It's a combination of surrealist elements from My Nurse and I, the portrait of Luther Burbank, that guy with an insatiable desire to breed things, and the quiet intimacy of her full-length self-portrait for El Viejo. And it's all wrapped up in her ongoing struggle with her Catholic upbringing, as she's projecting a Christ-like image, being willing to sacrifice herself for the people of Mexico, 
but with her hair down, an alluring, a seductive component. That's a bold move. I'm super into that part. She's putting the Madonna whore dichotomy on its head and saying, yeah, I mean, mostly I'm both. A painting like this, derived from her own pain, sacrifice, and sexuality, these are the lasting images that she couldn't easily recreate as commissions for other people. It's simultaneously her greatest strength and greatest weakness as a working artist. The good news is, 1943 brought Frida a different way to supplement her income, in a way that will make her even more endearing of a soul. The Ministry for Public Education recently reconfigured and reopened a brand new school called the National School for Painting, Sculpture, and Engraving. It was a five-year program, not necessarily intended to create pure artists, rather more creative people who were well-rounded. There were classes on history, different kinds of math, gross, French and Spanish, and it wasn't a school designed for the rich. This is far from the preparatoria. The building had one large classroom and an outdoor patio, and when it rained, everything flooded and students had to cross these wooden planks so their shoes didn't get wet from the rainwater. Tuition was paid for by the government. Everything was free. The focus was on giving poorer kids in the area an opportunity to learn from top teachers. The curriculum was designed to have Mexicanidad permeate the classes and have students learn with pride and excitement at their own cultural identity. Having famous teachers helped, and the ministry was open to any teacher that had a name students would recognize, was talented, and could inspire them and keep their attention. Benjamin Perret was a French Dadaist poet and surrealist who was part of André Breton's original crew. He moved to Mexico City from Paris and was teaching French. Maria Izquierdo was teaching there. Her and Diego and a bunch of other well-known artists taught landscapes, composition, sculpting. It was a traditional system of expert instructors with solid teaching credentials, imparting their academic and creative wisdom onto the youth. The students, teachers, everyone really, called the school by its nickname, named after the street where it was located. They called it La Esmeralda. In an effort to give the school more life, the education ministry took a chance, hiring a young, self-taught artist, someone with no prior teaching experience, but was a raw talent and quick wit. Flamboyant personality, and the last time she was in school, was involved in an on-campus explosion, repeatedly kicked out of class for bad behavior, and caused old Professor Antonio Caso to slip and fall down a flight of soapy stairs. The traditional model of teaching at La Esmeralda was about to be upended by a woman with one eyebrow, one mustache, and one lack of giving a holy hell about what your rules are. Friends, I hope you're as excited as I am. Frida Kahlo is going back to school. She was to be paid 252 pesos for teaching 12 hours spread out over three days a week, and she had no idea what she was supposed to be doing. On her first day, she walked up to another teacher, Feliciano Peña, and asked what the deal was with this whole teaching thing. From Peña, quote, Well, I have seen this Frida Kahlo in the office, and she looked at me and asked me, Are you a teacher here? And I said, Yes. Then Frida said, 
I don't know anything about teaching. How can she be a teacher if she doesn't know anything about teaching? Unquote. When she entered the classroom for the first time, none of the students knew what to expect. Some were immediately enamored by her, some were skeptical. All they knew was this famous wife of Diego Rivera, international celebrity in her own right, stood in front of the class in her Taiwan dress with a beaming smile on her face, looking like, as one student said, a walking flower. She chatted up the class for a little, full of enthusiasm and affection, and then from one of her students, Guillermo Monroy, who was a copious note-taker during his life, Frida said, quote, Well, kids, let's go to work. I will be your so-called teacher, but I am not any such thing. I only want to be your friend. I never have been a painting teacher, nor do I think I ever will be, since I am always learning. Once and for all, I am going to tell you that if the little experience that I have as a painter is helpful to you in any way, you will tell me so, and with me you will paint everything you want and feel. I will try to understand you the best I can. From time to time, I will permit myself to make a few observations about your work, but also I ask you, when I show you my work, that you will do the same. I will never take the pencil from you in order to correct you. I want you to know, dear children, that there does not exist in the whole world a single teacher who is capable of teaching art. To do that is truly impossible. We will surely talk a lot about some theoretical question or another, of the different techniques used in the arts, of form and content in art, and all of those things that are intimately related to your work. I hope you will not be bored with me, and when I seem to bore you, I ask that you please do not keep quiet." Unquote. If I were in that classroom as an impressionable teenage boy, I think I would have melted right there. And everyone did. Someone like Diego, who received a spectacular formal education, would be more inclined to create many versions of what he was taught, master this technique before moving into another. Frida taught her classes in a way that wasn't indoctrinating because she knew the value of what a unique style and perspective could bring that was different than what everybody else was doing. When observing her students' work, she'd say things like, quote, This should be in balance with that. I would do it this way, but I am me and you are you. It's an opinion, and I could be mistaken. If it's helpful to you, take it, and if not, leave it. None of the students painted like her, and that was fine. She would say, paint what you see, what you want. They would laugh and joke, and everyone would learn without it feeling like a lesson. And before they knew it, they were gaining skills, and their work was getting better in their own voices. Her students picked up early on the lesson that Frida most wanted to teach them, and that was the value of life and how beauty can be found anywhere in life. You only need to look for it. Fanny Rebell, one of her students, said one day in class, Frida announced, quote, Muchachos, locked up in here in school, we can't do anything. Let's go to the street. Let's go and paint the life in the street. Unquote. Day-long field trips were then a regular part of the lessons, to colonial convents, Baroque churches, the slums and streets to meet and talk to people, neighboring towns like Puebla. It didn't matter. Every destination was what you made of it. 
On the drives there and back, they all sang the revolutionary songs that Frida taught them, and they spoke to each other in the colorful form of Spanish she used, full of made-up words, gestures, mimicry, metaphor and irony. She was almost compelled to show these kids that you can find joy in every part of life because at least it was life, a perspective you might earn when you felt the closeness of death multiple times and you know your body is breaking down little by little each day. In the markets, she would buy her students tacos for lunch. Tacos held a special place in Frida's heart. They represented something delicious, uniquely Mexican, and she wanted her students to appreciate their cultural heritage. She even had her own taco war cry. She would yell, Tacos! Tacos indigenous! And her students would yell back, Tacos indigenous! Even when that wound on her foot reopened from her foot twisting outward until the tension split her skin open, which is making me gag just thinking about it, she'd get surgery, a pair of crutches, and her and her students would go. In a scene that sounds like it came right out of a movie, there was a random day her students showed up to class, and Frida was standing there next to a large covered truck, the kind with benches in the back that transported workers. They all got in the back, except for Frida. She got in the cozy part in front with the truck driver because she, quote, discovered that he had a very interesting face, unquote, and they drove to Teote Walk-In to see the pyramids. Before La Esmeralda, a few of her students didn't even know that art schools existed. They were children of families who spent generations in the fields as carpenters and furniture varnishers, and now they were learning about where they came from. While driving back to the city on this trip, Frida saw a pulcaria on the side of the road and yelled out, All the muchachos to the pulcaria! So everyone jumped out of the truck and marched into the pulcaria, except for Frida, who immediately followed up with, quote, As for me, I will stay with this gentleman who takes the wheel, unquote. She gave them money, and they drank pulque out of wood calabash cups with the locals, bought the locals drinks while getting a nice pulque buzz, talking to them and learning about their different experiences and perspectives, until Frida yelled out to her students, everybody up, and they got back on the truck and drove back to school. Pulquerias had come a long way since pulque was turned into a racist dog whistle for the Spanish colonists. They were a place where people could go and have some drinks in this kind of meta-history environment. And we're way past the drink of the gods painted on Los Bebedores mural in the Great Pyramid of Cholula. You gotta throw in their role in the Mexican Revolution, political battles that came after, the Civil War in Spain, World War II... Pulquerias were used as locations for political meeting spots or to just get out of the house and share complaints and drinks with a stranger for an hour or two. They were also buildings with indoor and outdoor walls that were prime real estate to paint the exact item you were selling, with now approaching a few thousand years of history built into the product from an advertising perspective alone, you'd have to be an idiot to not have a pulque mural. 
Pulcherias and muralism were so interconnected that it became a traditional subsection of Mexican muralism. Not a, a highfalutin one necessarily, it's not the National Palace, and they are selling booze, but it's also not like one of those 1970s spray-painted vans with murals of, of sexy space aliens rocking out on a guitar in front of flames with a bald eagle. Pulcheria murals were somewhere in between. In an effort to curb the amount of pulque being consumed, the more conservative government had recently pushed for a moderate approach to life and required pulquerias to paint over their murals with a, a whitewash in a renewed fight against pulque abuse. Instead of directly addressing issues of ongoing socioeconomic inequality, access to education, it's easier to blame pulque, again, than to fix the issues that made some people drink to escape the daily stresses of life. A short way down the street from the Casa Azul was the neighborhood pulqueria called La Rosita. It was a charming little place in the corner of Landre Street that was part of the community, a community full of colorful characters. Living right next door to La Rosita, with quick access to some much-needed drinks, was the former king of Romania, Carol II, who was living in exile. In his younger years, when Carol was the Prince of Romania, he was partying and having so many public affairs with a number of different women that when his wife gave birth to their son Michael, the king forced Carol to renounce his succession rights. He straight up boned his way out of the royal family and out of a marriage because when his wife Helen divorced his dumbass, he fled to Paris, leaving Michael behind as the future child king. When Carol's father, the king, died, six-year-old Michael took the throne instead. Then Carol came back to Romania, organized a coup against his own son, and declared himself king, a king chosen by God, until he got kicked out again for aligning Romania with Hitler and got suckered into giving away Romanian land to other countries. He is one of the countless random historical figures living in Coyoacan, and we don't really need to know anything else about Carol other than he lived next door to La Rosita. That, and he had the ultimate hipster mustache. He looks like a guy who can't help telling you that he used to love Vampire Weekend before they got all mainstream, and he really enjoys a good sour beer in the summer. To help get her students some experience and cultural immersion, Frida convinced the government to grant her a license so her students could paint the two street-facing walls of La Rosita, a reversal of the whitewashing policy. Her and Diego provided the supplies and supervised the murals. They didn't paint anything, just provided guidance. This was all about the students. Assignments for the murals, which were traditional town and country scenes, were handed out based on ability and interest. Fanny Rebel, one of the only girls to work on the mural, was assigned to paint children and flowers. That assignment was more gender-based. None of the macho boys wanted to paint children and flowers. When it was finally completed, Frida planned a spectacular celebration for the unveiling and celebration of the new walls at La Rosita, about the mural, how it was put together, and everything it represents, education of a new generation, Mexico's most famous couple giving back to the community, pulque, it was a massive party. There were parades, fireworks, mariachi bands played, people dressed in costumes, there were pulque tastings of different brew varieties, writers, politicians, and artists gave speeches, filmmakers came to document the event, the students sang songs, and of course, there was lots of tequila and dancing. 
During the party, one of the students convinced Diego that French Dadaist poet Benjamin Paré wanted to learn how to dance the Zapateado. Paré did not want to learn how to dance the Zapateado. Diego walked up to Paré with a serious look on his face and said, quote, let's dance. And Paré said, quote, no, I don't dance. I don't know how to dance the Zapateado. So Diego took out his gun and again politely asked French Dadaist poet Benjamin Paré to dance. Paré stood up and the two of them danced the Zapateado. Public education wasn't like this. You couldn't compare Frida's teaching style to anybody else. Her approach to education mirrored her approach to painting. Unstructured, non-traditional, and full of life and passion. She had them read Walt Whitman, the Russian poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, so they'd have a better understanding of metaphor to incorporate it visually, taught them pre-Columbian history as they sketched sculptures in the Anthropology Museum, learned about biology and botanicals from painting nature. No topic was learned in isolation. One of her students said, quote, Everybody loved her in a strange way. It was as if her life was always so close to those around her that you were tied up with her, as if you couldn't live without her." Unquote. At home, life with Diego was as you'd imagine, Frida wanting more than he could give, and there was play-acting that a marriage functioning well meant it was a happy and fulfilling one. In 1943, Frida painted Self-Portrait as a Tewana, a work with an immediately noticeable amount of tension and beauty. She's not exactly wearing the traditional Taiwan dress that Diego liked. It's more that it's all-encompassing. The colors are bright pastel, the ribbon is pink and shiny, and there are gigantic ruffles. All of that traditional femininity is consuming Frida, like it's eating her. Using a similar technique as in Roots, there are green tendrils coming out of the flower arrangement in her hair, combining with loose threads from her dress to create a, a spiderweb imagery that she's dangerously caught in. In the center of her forehead, the person on her mind at the core of these emotions, it's Diego, for all the reasons we don't have to rehash again that's contributed to this whirlwind of an emotional shitstorm. Teaching was a reprieve from that stress. Her marriage, overseeing the Pedregal excavation, it was her own money, she was changing her students' lives. Teaching made Frida happy, making it all the harder to deal with when that was taken away. Commuting back and forth to school turned out to be more demanding physically than she anticipated, and she wasn't starting from a good place. Over the past six months, she dropped 13 pounds, a lot of weight for someone as small as she was, and her foot and back, something needed to be done. There's a level of desperation. An orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Alejandro Zambrone, prescribed a steel corset that she'd need to wear every day to keep her upright, a corset that will become an indelible image associated with Frida in one of her most well-known paintings. Corsets used to be a medical option, they are now a necessity, and they never fully work. Something was still not right, though. From a general health perspective, she's having fainting spells, bad fevers, loss of appetite. So she went to another doctor who ran some tests, and the results came back, and the doctor informed Frida that she has syphilis. And that sucks. 
We've talked about syphilis several times in past episodes. In the pre-penicillin age, it's almost impossible not to. It was part of the human existence. Before penicillin and vaccines, being alive was a nightmare. We're still a few years away from penicillin, then the only real effective treatment against syphilis, being widely used as an antibiotic on civilians. As of 1943, we knew about penicillin, but the plan was to produce enough of it to treat battlefield wounds for World War II soldiers. I think the theory being, we've lived with syphilis so long, holding off for a few more years to beat Hitler, it's totally worth it. Doctors and scientists understood the promise of penicillin. It was a game-changing advancement for the human race. Coming up with enough of it, from a production standpoint, was still a dilemma. The major roadblock was a difficulty in reproducing an effective mold that was used to make it. We knew how to make it, there just wasn't a consistent supply of the mold to do it. Scientists did have a plan, though. They needed to find the optimum mold, and then they had to literally wine and dine it. They had to give the mold some corn liquor to drink, a byproduct of the corn milling process, in order for the mold to reproduce. This is nature at its best. A little corn liquor to help the magic happen, maybe throw on some berry white, and put the liquor in one of the nice glasses, the ones you use when company comes over. Get the environment right, and don't attack the mold as soon as it walks in the door. Jesus, light a candle or two, maybe rub the mold's feet, ask how its day was, and listen, really listen. And don't interrupt with opinions. The mold doesn't need your take on things right now. Don't try to fix every problem. The mold just wants to be heard. You gotta take your time, and when the mood is right and the corn liquor's got everybody loosened up, you touch your glucose disaccharide to its multicellular filaments, and you get into some mold reproduction. It's science. Eventually, a cantaloupe, the melon, in Peoria, Illinois, was found to contain the perfect mold to make penicillin, the only good thing cantaloupe has ever provided. It's certainly not taste, mouthfeel, or general appearance. And even then, the cantaloupe mold had to be soaked in corn liquor to get the whole process moving. The cantaloupe, on its own, still wasn't good enough. And you'll never be good enough, cantaloupe, because you're the packing peanuts of a fruit salad. You're either slimy or not ripe. At its utmost utility to the human race, cantaloupe still had to be drunk on corn liquor to mass-produce penicillin. All joking aside, for the average person, penicillin as a treatment is still years away. Without an effective antibiotic, syphilis hides within your system, some form of latency, until it can come back years later and severely damage multiple organs, your heart, blood vessels, liver, kidneys, and at the final stage, neurosyphilis, it can cause your brain and nervous system to go haywire and you go Al Capone crazy until you die. To treat the disease, Frida was prescribed bismuth, the active ingredient in Pepto-Bismol, the pink stuff for when you're gassy or not pooping right, and time in the sun. Things that, from the last few minutes of cantaloupe porn and my idiot understanding of science, we know don't cure syphilis. A diagnosis like this is bad news for anyone. 
For someone who's this thoroughly biologically compromised, it's just another runner in the race to see what will kill her first. The 1943 self-portrait Thinking About Death is a continuation of the type of surrealist imagery she's been using. Vines with thorns that look like razor blades within the abundant vegetation. The tranquil garden she loves to tend, where the turkeys like to have sex. It's two sides of the same coin, the juxtaposition of life against the threat and sadness and torment around any corner. At the center of her forehead, an image of a skull and crossbones, the creeping thoughts of death. She looks tired, somber, and at the same time determined and stoic. Teaching at La Esmeralda, getting to hang out with Maria Izquierdo as co-workers, the field trips, it was time to say goodbye. In early 1944, Frida let her students know that she adored them, but she could no longer come to the school. What she did offer, though, was for the students who wanted to keep learning from her, they could come to the Blue House in Coyoacan as often as they wanted, and she would continue lessons, still for free. In the beginning, quite a few of the students took the offer, then the long bus ride that some of them could barely afford, needing to spend more time working on family businesses, students started to fall away. In the end, four students stayed, who were determined to learn everything they could from Frida about art and life. They were her academic disciples. Diego had his too, students who dedicated their education and careers to the great maestro, and whatever fame and fortune that might come with being associated with the most celebrated painter in Mexico. They were known as Los Dieguitos. The four students who stuck with Frida were Arturo Garcia Bustos, Guillermo Monroy, Arturo Estrada, and Fanny Rebel, and they called themselves Los Fridos, and Frida was their maestra. The three boys were only slightly in love with Frida in the beginning, and that evolved into seeing her more as a big sister, the same way Fanny Rebel saw her. Los Fritos spent as much time as they could at the Casa Azul, where they were safe, well-fed, and surrounded by the celebration of life that permeated the home, and met people they never imagined they'd get to meet. Fanny Rebel described the unbelievable scene. She said she'd be in the garden oasis with all the animals, and she'd look around at the people who would be at these long afternoon lunches talking about World War II, art history and theory, Jacqueline Bertone would be there, old man Dr. Ottle, the grandfather of Mexican muralism, he's still alive and hanging around. It's film actors, photographers, French Dadaist poet Benjamin Perre. He would come to the house and do whatever annoying things French Dadaist poets do. We've talked extensively about the human menagerie of giants around on a daily basis. Fanny and Los Fritos got to see it and be a part of it. There was a, it wasn't even a big event at the Blue House, it was a normal one. And Fanny was looking around with this odd look on her face. That, what the hell am I doing here feeling when the awestruck turns to feelings of imposter syndrome and insecurity and you start to freak out a little bit? And as her eyes were moving, scanning the party, she locked eyes with Frida, who had been smiling and watching Fanny the whole time, and Frida gave her a little wink. Later on in the day, when there was a break in the action, Fanny confided in Frida how self-conscious and intimidated she felt, not knowing how to act in front of all of these giant personalities. Frida responded, quote, You know why they do all those crazy things? Because they don't have any personality. They must make it up. 
You are going to be an artist because you have talent. You are an artist so you don't have to do all those things. Unquote. And it was true. Frida wasn't saying that to placate Fanny. Born Fanny Rabinovich, an immigrant from Poland, she would go on to have her first exhibition in Mexico in 1945. Frida helped her prepare for it and even wrote the presentation. Fanny worked as an apprentice for Siqueiros, Diego, and became one of the first women muralists in Mexico. She had turned her task in the La Rosita mural, being the girl in charge of painting children because the boys didn't want to, into a strength and became celebrated for her ability to paint children. The students discovered that lessons at the house with Frida couldn't be planned or anticipated like a scheduled class at La Esmeralda. Some weeks she would review their work two and three times, then it might be two weeks until she could sit down and give her thoughts. In return, she wanted their honest opinions. Los Fritos were family now, and with the same infrequency that she let other close friends and families see her work before it was finished, she'd ask their opinions. In 1944, she brought Los Fritos into her studio to get their impressions on a painting that she was almost done with. It was a few days away, and when they saw it, they didn't know what to say. The painting they saw is called The Broken Column. It's another one of Frida's more iconic works. Even I knew about this before starting the series. The lowest of bars. It's easy to see why Los Fritos were speechless, and how this painting became an enduring image over the decades. The lava fields of Pedregal are again used here as a backdrop. It's a recurring visual device she uses during this period. The fields are uniquely Mexican. They're flexible as a metaphor depending on how they're used, either being bleak and scarily lifeless or the source of life. And the simplicity and neutrality allows Frida as the subject to stand out. What's standing out is a crying Frida wearing her metal-strapped corset, breasts exposed showing vulnerability, and wrapped in a white cloth. Originally, she painted herself completely naked, but decided full nudity might be too much, given her body is graphically split open all the way up to her neck. Exposed is a shattered marble column, her broken spine that's not doing its job, a crumbling and useless architectural component of her body. Embedded in her skin are nails, everywhere that hurts, the largest nails tracing the broken column, past her pelvis where the metal rod punctured, all the way down her leg. The largest, girthiest nail, her biggest duck mole eating pain, is over her heart where it hurts the most. Los Fritos knew there were medical issues. I don't know that they appreciated the amount of pain she was in, though. Sometimes words aren't enough. The broken column said everything, and her students were naturally worried. What if, while she was out on one of her errands, what if she fell? There were times when Frida would disappear for hours and hours, and nobody knew where she was. And thank God nobody knew where she was on one of these clandestine outings. Otherwise, somebody might have been straight up murdered. A broken column doesn't mean every part of you is broken. Sex was still a possibility, and her sexual appetite hasn't gone anywhere. In 1944, Frida had to get another abortion. It's something that's a medical necessity, and despite it being a necessity, it's something she never gets used to isn't the right way to characterize it. I don't know if you ever get used to that. It's something that deeply affects her each time. 
In this case, she wasn't able to clearly express her sadness or talk about her feelings. There's little to no detail on this pregnancy and termination. Entirely on purpose. Nobody was to know about this. There's a better chance we find Jimmy Hoffa's body buried with the Holy Grail than get more information on what happened. The one fact we do know is an absolute certainty. We now know three things are guaranteed. Death, taxes, and Diego was not involved in this pregnancy. And he would have known that. And any person who would threaten French Dadaist poet Benjamin Perret with a gun for not dancing would unequivocally murder this man who impregnated Frida. And about who, Frida said, quote, I truly love him, and he makes me feel the desire to live again, unquote. The few snippets of information we have is that he was a dashing refugee from Spain, a passionate artist whose name starts with B, not to be confused with Ricardo, her other Spanish refugee lover. Only Christina, her friend Ella Wolf in New York, and one other person knew this Spanish refugee lover whose name starts with B existed. Frida told Ella he should only be referred to in letters as Sonia. Having to terminate her pregnancy was a reminder that she couldn't have children, and the person she wanted to have a baby with above anyone else was Diego, not some mysterious lover, it's always Diego, an angst she reminds us of in some of the most unlikely places in her work. In 1945, Frida completed a painting she called Moses, sometimes referred to as Nucleus of Creation, one of her more complicated works from this period. It was a breakthrough of the artistic block she had when painting for other people, and will shift how she'll be viewed as an artist within Mexico. We're going to spend some time on this one. Moses was a commission for an engineer named José Domingo Levin, one she was able to complete, do an extraordinary job pulling from the depths of her understanding and appreciation for history, metaphor, powerful uses of surrealist imagery, and still include personal details, combining what made her work so moving with content other people wanted on their walls. Levin requested a painting that was Frida's artistic interpretation of the book Moses and Monotheism by Sigmund Freud. Moses and Monotheism was Freud's last book, written from his deathbed, laying out, from his perspective, the evolution of monotheistic religions by examining the story of Moses as viewed through secular history, archaeology, anthropology, and obviously psychology. In this last book, Freud makes assessments and conclusions that R.Z. Friedman called, in volume 34 of the Cambridge Journal of Religious Studies, quote, intellectually flawed and politically misdirected. Sigmund Freud was sort of a dick when it came to religion, but he hit on a number of the, and I'm trying to be careful myself here so I'm also not a dick, Freud wanted to show that there are some possible alternative explanations for how and why religion developed and why it's so heavily relied on. Freud explored the concepts on the nature of a religion as potentially a societal calming agent, as we, from what our limited brains can process and interpret, fly through an unfathomably expansive space at 67,000 miles an hour around a giant ball of fire, one of a hundred thousand million stars in the Milky Way, itself one of two trillion galaxies, trapped within this thing we call time, resulting in the inevitable heat death of the universe, and perhaps, 
perhaps, believing that a kind old man with a white beard being in control of that makes us feel better and keeps society running. I'm not saying that's my viewpoint necessarily, that was Freud's analysis, and whether he knew it or not, Levin's request was at the core of Frida's crisis of faith, constantly wavering between her Catholic upbringing and atheist leanings as an adult, her fear and wonderment about life and the existential dread of inevitable death that stalked her day after day. Moses is split into three sections. The center third is the baby Moses in his floaty bed thing that he was found in by his adopted mother, I think. It might have been one of the servants. I'm pretty thin on this history. I saw the Prince of Egypt when I was a kid, back when we used to use white actors to voice non-white roles. Moses, as voiced by Val Kilmer. And I pretty much gave up after that. And I'm not making judgment calls on how important Moses is versus Val Kilmer. I'm just saying only one of them was in Top Gun. You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. Baby Moses in his floaty bed? I mean, you only need to look for half a second to see it's a baby Diego. Above him is the nature of life and existence in its smaller, more intimate forms. Sperm in an egg, a developing fetus wrapped in a womb, the birth of Judaism and monotheism, surrealistically portrayed as a literal interpretation of birth, the whole point of life in experiencing life. We are all born under one giant fireball in the sky, what allows us to grow the crops we eat, stay warm in the unforgiving winters, gives you a sunburn when you take a family trip to New Jersey in the late 90s. We don't need a hundred billion suns, we just need this one, and baby Diego is on par with the sun in this painting, folded into the Moses theme. On the upper left and right thirds of Moses are the other origin beliefs and how religion fits together. You could spend hours only trying to identify the creation myths and legends and process the implications of Frida's decisions as to where to place them, let alone what they look like. Religions from pre-Columbian Mexico, Egypt, there's Christianity and Buddhism. And then below all the creation stuff is this High school yearbook of standout human beings, known for their impact on human history, good and bad, the superlative awards for the best and worst we have to offer, and everything in between, from Gandhi to Hitler. And not a metaphor, Hitler and Gandhi both make an appearance in this painting. So does Stalin. There's also a giraffe, and I believe the Confederate flag... Jesus is in there, the older, sexy Jesus with the beard, Nefertiti, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte. She painted monkeys as a metaphor for evolution. We're only 20 years or so after the Scopes monkey trial, the fight over the other creation option, the evidence-based assessment that we're just another form of monkey, evolved to the point now where we fling poo at each other on Twitter. At the bottom and in the background is all of us, the mass of humanity, collectively the people who war together, pray together, and in the blink of an eye in cosmic terms, die together. Moses is Sigmund Freud and Frida Kahlo, two titans of history, brilliant and flawed, in the middle of existential crises, staring death in the face and asking the questions that can keep you up late at night. Stylistically, it's consistent with Mexican muralism, only smaller. 
Frida compressed a traditional mural to the scale of an oil painting, the entirety within the viewer's sightline, accomplishing a few things. She's addressing the criticism that the smallness of her early paintings was a way to hide her own insecurities and lack of technical skill, a painter of miniatures, and challenging the major criticism to mural painting that it uses its grand size and scale to hide technical flaws, like when Diego would take his own shortcuts on the scaffolds, dialing back his own brilliance to save some energy for entertaining the crowd and whoever he was trying to coax into bed. Moses is one of Frida's masterpieces, a painting that put her on the map in Mexico as an artist who could no longer be ignored as a, a byproduct of fame or critically brushed aside as a cute novelty. It's her story, the story of Mexico, the human race and existence itself, a blend of her distinct oil style and Mexican muralism. There's monkeys, Karl Marx is in there too, such a boring pamphlet, created in a style that was, it was kind of a half-joking, half-serious challenge to Diego, letting him know that she could do his thing too. I love the Moses painting. So did a lot of people back then. It's hard not to. It's Jesus, some monkeys, a giraffe, some shit is on fire, the sun has long arms and weird fingers, and some guy is holding the flag of Japan. It's great. The only thing I like better than the painting itself is what happens when Frida wins an award for it. It's without a doubt one of my favorite Frida Kahlo moments that captures to a T who she was as a person. It's a moment that we're going to hold off on talking about for now. I think it's better if we come back to it when we need it the most, and we will need it. The rest of 1945 is one of those years where we need to almost look through a fog of history. We get glimpses of what happened, lacking the detail that we've come to expect. Her work with Los Fritos continued, who spent as much of their time as they could with their maestra at the Blue House and Pedregal. Other than that, she's attempting to work as her body is contorting with her back collapsing on itself and her foot is... I mean, imagine someone is relentlessly twisting your foot 45 degrees from the way the rest of your leg is facing. It's corset after corset, none of them working, x-ray after x-ray, looking for some indication that an operation could fix something. In 1945 alone, Frida was x-rayed 25 times. For one of the x-rays, Dr. Zimbrone, the guy who prescribed the steel corset in the broken column, injected Frida with Lipidol, which is an oil that's used as a contrasting agent. What was supposed to happen was, the Lipidol was supposed to move to her spine so the doctors could get more detail in the x-ray as to where, I don't know, something with science. Instead, when they x-rayed Frida's back, no Lipidol. It was gone. It didn't work how it was supposed to. So, no answers there. She had to go home and deal with the debilitating pain that shot through her body anytime she laughed, sneezed, had an orgasm, coughed. All those activities were on equal footing as causing profound discomfort. There are few better things in life than a great, uncontrollable belly laugh and a good sneeze, both of which now hurt like hell. Then the headaches came. It was this pressure inside of her head, like something was pushing her brain against her skull, rolling headache after headache. Why not add this to the list? 
So she went back to get an x-ray of her head, and what do you know? They found the lipidol. It had traveled up to her brain, a big glob of oil now stuck inside of her brain that I guess was eventually absorbed by her body. She's swapping out different corsets, one that wouldn't allow her to sit up straight and work, driving Frida insane, so she wrapped a sash around the chair and her waist and tied herself to the chair. It's not a viable option. Another corset was fit to her body by a friend of hers, a doctor from Spain with no background in orthopedics, and whatever he did to the plaster, using too much or too little water, I don't know plaster, and neither did this doctor, which feels more like a critical element to this endeavor than my own stupidity. If you're going to wrap a human being in something, I mean, first, make sure you have their permission. It's like four different felonies if you don't. And two, have a modicum of understanding of what you're doing. Whatever he did to the corset caused it to shrink as it dried in the middle of the night like a boa constrictor and wouldn't allow her lungs to expand. And at 4.30 in the morning, all of this noise came out of her bedroom, and someone had to come in and saw the corset off. She laughed and did the only thing she could do. She painted the corset, and it can still be seen at the Casa Azul Museum today. Now, before we move on, we have to discuss a caveat to the rest of her story. We need to reorient ourselves and make sure we're aware of the full tangled web of what's about to happen. History is kinda sure about the specifics of Frida's medical past, the order of events, whether surgeries happened or didn't happen, the order of corsets and when she wore them, and by kinda sure, I really mean nobody knows. Much like with Caravaggio, where historians had to piece together and deduce events and relationships between people from court documents and arrest records, some of which weren't discovered until like a decade or so ago, Frida's medical records follow the same path. The best records are sketchy and discovered a few years back, and even then, the documents are still drenched in outstanding questions. Until a few years ago, nearly all of the details we've had are from her letters and a summary of hers and her family's medical history that'll be written next year in 1946 for a Dr. Henriette Begun, a German OBGYN living in Mexico. Henriette Begun is a mystery unto herself, next to no information exists, though her specialty would tell us it's probable that Frida needed another therapeutic abortion or wanted a final opinion as to whether she could carry to term. A few years ago, the curators at the Casa Azul Museum were able to safely unlock a section of the house, I believe it was her closet, and discovered two typewritten records that were unsigned and a letter written by Dr. Alesser. Handwritten dates on the two records, which look suspiciously like Frida's handwriting, suggest even though the records were written in the third person, it was Frida herself who typed them up, so not a primary source and subject to her own interpretations, subconscious or otherwise. Which brings us back to the other element of her sketchy medical records, and it's complicated. If nothing else, she is a complicated person. 
Frida went to a lot of doctors, surgeons, specialists, most of their names we don't know, let alone what their recommendations or opinions were. Different doctors for different corsets, treatments, procedures, the opened wound on her twisted foot, and the records are straight up ramshackle when they exist, possibly due to it being 1945. The other possibility is the doctors weren't telling Frida what she wanted to hear, and even that isn't straightforward as to why. Either there was nothing they could do and she looked for second opinions or more skilled doctors, or they weren't willing to do what she wanted them to. It was an open secret among the people closest to Frida that her pain and suffering became part of her identity. We've already gotten glimpses of that. It brings out the best in her artistically, makes her different, and gives her that gallows humor, finding humor in the least expected parts of life. The theory is, and this is from a few family and friends, including Dr. Alesser, that a number of Frida's surgeries were likely unnecessary. They were elective for a combination of a few complex reasons. The first is that surgery is a manifestation of some form of narcissism, where surgery would ensure she would be the focus of Diego and others, like a Munchausen sort of thing. That's coupled with a pain disorder, where physical pain manifests from extreme psychological pain, like the fear and PTSD that comes from having a deadly childhood illness, being exploded by a train-bus collision, abortions and a miscarriage when all you want are kids, and when your husband sleeps with your sister, stuff like that. And mixed in there is the belief, subconsciously or consciously, that for her legitimate physical pain, surgery is desirable because it's complete, it's mechanical, it's a more understandable solution. Frida's suffering is also what will, above anything else, make Diego stay and settle his wandering eye and wandering penis, not her tears, anger, or the fact that he's about to turn 60 years old. The fear of losing Frida for good, in death, is the one fear that will make him drop everything else. Work, women, he will keep taking a mile with every inch Frida gives until she's in trouble. When Frida is at her worst physically, he steps up. You know, ish. As soon as she's out of the woods, he looks at Gringa tourists again. I felt uncomfortable hearing that. All of it. Like I didn't want to see the message of Frida's strength being tarnished. The idea of her wanting elective surgeries to either maintain her image of the long sufferer or to keep Diego happy. There is truth, I think, to the idea of Frida embracing suffering as part of her identity, and knowing the sicker she is or seems, the less likely Diego would be to divorce her. It's just too easy to package that with bad medical records and say her surgeries were elective and driven primarily by psychological causes. It's not only lazy and low-effort thinking, it ignores the medical records we do have, and most importantly, ignores the fact that Frida was obsessed with life, something we see more and more as it gets taken away from her. The food, the music, experiences, the joys and sorrows, dirt and muck— thrills, and boredom, everything that life itself brings. Tying her surgeries back to the literal relationship between her and Diego is failing to go deeper. 
In a number of her self-portraits during these late years, many contain a small image of Diego that she painted as a third eye on her forehead, always on her mind, or Diego as a baby or her baby. It seems like, and this is not just my theory, a number of actual historians believe this to be the case, that when Frida says Diego is my life or Diego is life, she's really saying life is life, whether she's even consciously aware of it or not, and I lean toward the side that she's likely not. Diego is more of a manifestation of her love of life than he is the center and source of it. He's the common thread, the through line to her entire adult life, the intersection of what she experienced, her losses, greatest accomplishments. He's always around. Looking at it through that lens, you could see how it might be easier for Frida, on the surface at least, to concentrate on Diego as the nexus of life, rather than fully face her existential fear of losing life itself. Another consideration is there seems to be almost an element of shrewdness with using Diego's image as the center of what's on her mind at all times in her work. Her self-portraits, Moses, like it's this uncontrollable fixation and nobody else matters to her romantically, which we know is utter nonsense. History is more likely to remember a self-portrait with Diego's image in the center of her head. He's the other half of the most famous couple in Mexico. It's better marketing and has a greater historical value for when these works, in her mind at the time, would be displayed for the remainder of Mexico's future history in the Anahuacali Museum. Otherwise, it's an awkward situation to have to explain why, when you chose to place the image of a man in the center of your forehead in one of your paintings, you chose the image of some swarthy Spanish refugee with eight inches, kind eyes, and a strong jawline, instead of your kinda weird-looking older husband with an oozy, pussy infection in his eye who didn't like cleaning himself. That part's true. Diego didn't like taking a bath, so Frida had to ply him with toys and she'd wash his back as he played in the bathtub like a little kid. That's some weird shit right there. I don't know what to do with that one. The final aspect of this surgical issue is, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but we do need to talk about this before we move forward, is at a time when surgical success rates, I'm talking surviving them and the doctor not snipping something they weren't supposed to, aren't like they are today. It's lazy to apply our modern-day collective understanding of the relative safety of surgeries to the 1940s. The do-I-or-don't-I calculus just isn't the same. Dr. Alesser himself may have said the surgeries weren't necessary, or some of the surgeries weren't necessary, but he's a doctor from 1945. No offense to doctors who practice in the 40s. If there are any listening, I appreciate you, and congratulations on still being alive. I just think we know more now. A present-day orthopedic surgeon would ask Dr. Alesser, a Norman Rockwell painting come to life, to go stand in the corner during an operation. Our good doctor also had an unconventional and borderline inappropriate friendship with Frida for purposes of the doctor-patient relationship. Nobody wants to see their good friend under the knife if it can be avoided. They were way too personally close for him to give consistently unbiased opinions. The human fetus in a jar story that I mentioned before, it's exhibit A to the argument that a lesser is too emotionally connected to Frida to be impartial, so we might as well talk about that now. 
after one of Frida's surgeries, and I'm not positive which one because of all the stuff we just talked about, so we'll just say a surgery, as a get-well present, Dr. Alessar gave Frida a tiny, preserved human fetus in a jar. A dark, dark present that she fucking loved and would show to people who came to the house and made everyone uncomfortable. For everything Frida's gone through, her personality, her outlook on life, sense of humor, a pickled human fetus in a jar as a get-well present is flawless and Kinda weird to be coming from your treating physician. A lesser is too close to the sun. Having an understanding of these surgeries and their timeline helps us get a better understanding of why Frida uses some of the surrealist imagery she does. Her paintings help fill in the blanks about what happened and how she felt about it. She was preparing for a major surgery toward the end of 1945 when she painted Without Hope. On a sliding scale of whether surgery was necessary or elective, I lean toward it being necessary. Her biggest issue is she needs to get her body to a healthy enough weight so she could handle a major procedure. Her doctor said that she was too thin. The doctor said, with a big smile, thinking he was nailing the whole bedside manner thing, quote, Now you can eat anything! And by eat anything, what he really meant was, I'm requiring you to eat pureed food every two hours, and I'm overseeing the process because I don't believe you're capable of doing this yourself with your preferred diet of candy and tequila. With the lava fields of Pedregal as the background, without hope is Frida crying as she's being forced to eat chicken, fish, a pig, beef sausage, as the animals are pureed into a funnel of meat goop into her mouth. A hyper-magically real image of what it looked like as she's forced to have meat and fish smoothies when she's not hungry and the constant feedings are getting in the way of her work. The other interpretation of this image is that the food is going the other way, and she's puking up her meat and fish smoothie, and the food is splattering onto the canvas and easel, propped over her bed so she could work as she healed. There's sort of a David Cronenberg body horror feel to Without Hope, the same as The Broken Column, and it's titled Without Hope. It's insane to think somebody would continue to volunteer for this type of existence when she could be out dancing, traveling, eating tacos, and going to boxing matches. She's capable of creating her own emotional distress for inspiration. The title of the piece is reiterated on the back of the painting's frame, where Frida inscribed a rhyme, written in Spanish and translated to English. Quote, Not the least hope remains to me. Everything moves in time with what the belly contains. Unquote. Desperate times call for desperate measures is a tried-and-true cliché. Anyone who says it in real life without a sense of irony deserves our collective shame and ridicule, because it's only the most obvious thing to say. But it's a cliché for a reason, and it can fail to register as more than that, because many of us have never been faced with an honest, last-resort circumstance. Frida's growing desperation and sense of urgency is radiating off of a February 15, 1946 letter. She's considering the unthinkable, a choice that would test her moral fiber and sense of revulsion, her understanding of who she is as a woman, as a Mexican, as a person. She's considering going back to Gringolandia. 
The February 15th letter was to Ella Wolf in New York, letting Ella know that she'd been told by several orthopedic surgeons in Mexico City that spinal surgery was her only option, and before doing so, she wanted to consult with a gringo surgeon in New York. The specialist in New York was Dr. Philip Wilson, a recent Columbia and Harvard grad who was brilliant and at the cutting edge of orthopedic surgery, even though he was only a couple years out of med school. Wilson would go on to have an illustrious career, including two decades as the surgeon-in-chief at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, having graduated 146 residents and 181 fellows. There's a two-page spread on this guy in the Hospital for Special Surgery's 2009 Fall Alumni Letter. He's on the cover, an adorable old man with a bow tie. He's known for going to the UK in 1966 to learn the hip replacement surgery from the guy who pioneered it as the guy was developing it and brought the hip replacement surgery back to the States. Wilson was a skilled surgeon and educator until he retired and later passed away in the year 2016. That is super impressive. And I'm not talking about his career. I mean the date. Honestly, I don't even care that Paul M. Polici from the class of 1980 said, quote, For me, he defines the excellence of hospital for special surgery. He leads by example with his integrity, professionalism, and surgical skillfulness. He is an inspiration, unquote. How about the fact that Dr. Wilson was alive long enough to be able to rank most of the movies in the Fast and Furious franchise and have opinions on whether Tokyo Drift is underrated and whether it was lazy or genius to say, don't worry, the timeline works out. Tokyo Drift takes place in the future. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. It was a strange moment. I was deep in the research and I wanted more information on this guy because this surgery and what happens after is, this is pivotal and we needed to peel back a few layers. And I saw the 2016 date and my brain kind of misfired. I was like, I bet Dr. Wilson would want justice for Han too. I don't have friends. I got family. At the time though, Decades before Dom Toretto was living his life quarter mile at a time, Dr. Wilson was a young, talented, and ambitious surgeon in New York who was willing to take certain risks other doctors weren't because he was so good. Wilson and Frida's worlds will collide when he was referred to Frida by a trusted friend, a guy named Arkady Boitler, also known as the Russian Rooster, one of the better nicknames in history. Arkady Boitler was an innovative Russian filmmaker who immigrated to Mexico, where he helped usher in the golden age of Mexican cinema. As a writer, director, producer, he did everything well. Boitler made iconic Mexican films in the 30s and 40s, revolutionary dramas, a love story about a woman torn between the love of two rancheros, and he directed La Mujer del Puerto, the film that originally brought him to Mexico in the early 30s, a film about a small-town girl named Rosario who came from humble beginnings in Cordoba. Rosario lived with her father and was betrothed to be married to a man in town. Her father got sick, though, and had to stop working, no longer able to care for his unmarried daughter. And before she could marry her betrothed, Rosario caught him in the arms of another woman in the village. 
Déjame explicarte, Rosario. Esta muchacha es de mi pueblo. No me digas nada. Mira, Rosario. Yo... No me hables. Rosario's father overheard what happened and was furious. He confronted his future son-in-law with a hammer. There was a struggle, and the man threw Rosario's father down a flight of stairs, killing him. Unwilling to marry the man who would so freely break her heart and kill her father, and with no other options, Rosario fled to Veracruz to live above a cabaret in the city overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. To support herself, she became a sex worker for the sailors who came into port, and as a jaded soul, she toyed with men's emotions and used sex as a weapon, and then one of the drunken sailors gets angry at her callous rejection, and he gets aggressive with Rosario, and she's in danger, until the strapping and mysterious stranger, Alberto, steps in and chases off the sailor, saving Rosario. The passion between Rosario and Alberto is undeniable, and thanks to Alberto's selfless courage, Rosario again sees hope with a man, a courageous man, and she allows herself to give in to her desires, and her and Alberto have sex. Not transactionally, as sex worker and patron, they make love. Rosario! Alberto! In their post-coital bliss, as they eat some snacks, Rosario and Alberto talk of their pasts, and they learn more about their unexpected new loves. But oddly, a number of interesting details match up. And as they share, more of their histories have strange similarities. It doesn't make sense. There's too much coincidence. And then suddenly, everything comes into focus, and they realize that they are indeed brother and sister. Rosario is so broken by her willingness to give in to her passions, being rewarded with such a monumentally gross misfortune, that she runs away from her flat above the cabaret, in tears to the nearby docks. Alberto rushes to the docks after her, desperate to find his new love and sister, and yells to Rosario, Rosario! Rosario! Instead of finding Rosario, Alberto looks down as the waves crash against the rocks below, mist from the sea blending with the tears streaming down his face, and he sees only Rosario's shawl. She had flung herself into the ocean below to her death, completing the tragedy. Rosario! The Russian Rooster. It's like the movie Old Boy, only it's not Korean. I watched the entire movie on YouTube. It was an hour 15 long, very breezy. There was no way I was finding that movie and then not watching it. There were no subtitles, and I didn't understand anything that was being said, but it was awesome. With Frida's love of film and her and Diego's cultivating famous and creative friends, the Mexican film industry was the next evolution. Directors, producers, the hot new actors, they were regulars at the Blue House. Arcady Boitler was destined to run in their social circles. 
Boitler had gone through serious and painful back problems and told Frida that Dr. Wilson was the guy. Nobody could fix his back until he met Dr. Wilson, and she needed to get a hold of this guy quickly because he was in high demand. Frida got his information and wrote to Ella Wolf in New York to see if Ella could convince Dr. Wilson to take Frida as a patient. In the letter, Frida said that Ella should go to Wilson's office at 321 East 42nd Street, give him her medical history and the 25 x-rays from the past year. Frida was very specific as to what she was asking for, why, and how to present it to Wilson. I'm talking a literal numbered list of facts and circumstances for Ella to relay so he had a full understanding of the situation. Instead of going through the entire long list of numbered items verbatim, I'll summarize them. I think I speak pretty decent Frida at this point, considering I've spent more personal time with her in the last year than I have with any other woman. So I'll translate from the more polite language she used, in case Dr. Wilson read the letter, to what I believe she meant. Translated from English to Freducha. Tell Wilson that I can make it to Gringolandia in April, and make sure he'll be there. If he won't, find out when he is so I can go then, and not a minute sooner. And get him to commit to a date. I have no interest in staying in that country any longer than I have to. Everything there sucks, except for movie theaters and Chinese babies. Make sure he knows that I want his best effort, and not to half-ass this. If I get there and he half-asses this, I'm gonna be pissed. See if he can take me right away, or I'll find somewhere to stay if he can't. I'm not staying in another wretched Gringolandia hospital any longer than I have to. I kinda have bad memories of those. I've been confined to bed for four months, eating meat smoothies, everything hurts, and this trip will make things harder for me because 1946 propeller planes are bouncy as shit, and I don't even want to go, so make sure he can actually do something, and I'm paying for this myself, so tell this guy not to overcharge me. He came highly recommended. And lastly, Ella, if you think it'll help motivate the young doctor to help, tell him that I have an amazing personality and let him know how smoking hot I am. And that last bit is less of a translation to free to speak and more verbatim. Quote, I leave you in complete liberty to give him any kind of explanations, and you may even describe me. If it is necessary, ask Nick for a photo so that he should know what I look like. Unquote. She ends with this, the final numbered item on the list, and I think is incredibly telling as a self-exploration of, of how she wonders what role she herself played in her current health crisis. The sheer amount of alcohol she was drinking, her poor diet, times when she was prideful and ignored doctor's advice, and if Dr. Wilson would just take a chance on her as a patient, she would be better with her own health choices. Quote, Tell him that as a sick person, I am rather stoic, but that now is a little hard for me because in this life, one suffers but one learns, and that in addition, the pile of years has made me pen, and she puts an ellipsis here before finishing the word, Sodora, pensadora meaning thoughtful in Spanish. Many kisses and thanks from your Quatacha, Frida. The biographer Hayden Herrera thinks pen, 
Sodora, with the ellipsis as a pause in thought, was free to humor, how she plays with language, and the pause was her wink and a nod that she meant pendeja, and I couldn't agree more. She's saying I've been a fucking idiot, and I haven't been making the right choices, I've played the character of someone strong, and I've made things worse, I know it, and I need help. Letters like this are what makes me think Frida wasn't desperate for surgeries just to keep Diego around, at least not for what's on the way. It's not an easy choice. Whether she'll actually be better with self-care decisions after is an open question, and it's got a really difficult answer. After seeing the literal train wreck that was her spine, Dr. Wilson agreed to take Frida on as a patient, and the logistics were figured out through Ella, with a tentative surgery date of sometime in early June. The possibility of this being a life-changing operation wasn't lost on Frida, and to show her appreciation for the referral, she gave Arkady Boitler and his wife Lena a special wedding gift. On May 3, 1946, a few weeks before she leaves with Christina for New York, she gave them a painting she called The Wounded Deer. With The Wounded Deer, Frida is hitting her stride during these post-second marriage years. She's relying on her raw intelligence and curiosity to add historical, philosophical, and religious layers, incorporating her surroundings, and she's not constrained, it's more that she's refocusing her brutality and honesty in a way that's expressive and casts a wider appeal. The Wounded Deer is one of those paintings that's uniquely Frida and captures so many people as soon as they see it. It's arresting. The trees in the forest are old, they're dying and they have cracks, except for the branch on the ground, a sapling that fell off the tree, a reminder of youth, broken off from the violent thunderstorm of the crazy stuff that happens in life before it could grow. Then there's the Frida deer, a surrealist image that she painted using Granzino as the model. Using an animal as a replacement for her body continued a theme within Mexican folklore, songs, poetry, of personifying or using deer as subjects, specifically deer, and I don't know why, and it connects her with nature and the Aztec gods. Her human head, with an animal body, is an allusion to pre-Columbian religions and culture that used imagery like this to symbolize continuance and rebirth. And it's a male deer, a stag with horns, a female's face on a male's body, which her friends said was an expression of the fact that she did feel masculine at times, maybe just as often as she felt feminine, and wasn't afraid to express it. There was also a time in her career when she started making active decisions to make her eyebrows and mustache darker and more pronounced. Again, statements through hair, only its facial hair, projecting the image of feeling more masculine every once in a while. From the time she was younger and liked to ride bikes, wrestle, and as a young woman dress up in men's suits, to her attraction to women, the denim jackets and jeans she would wear while working. Women didn't wear denim jackets in the 40s. Her willingness to destroy what people associated with traditional femininity by cutting off her hair. Gender roles weren't exactly her favorite to conform to. 
There was a tug between the masculine and feminine for Frida that a lot of times she didn't want to have to make the choice between because who really cares, which wasn't a popular way to live your life during her time. She's a person who likes to drink tequila, will cut her hair short, and wear denim jackets while saying filthy words, and then smash an empty glass on the floor of a bar and go down on that lady over there. And she also wants to wear Tawana dresses, and makeup, have flowers and pretty things in her hair, paint her fingernails a fun color, and then go down on that same lady over there. People like what they like. I like pie and anything sung by Adina Menzel. I mean, what are we talking about? Why are we litigating this stuff? Frida's been screaming at us in nearly every painting she's created that she knows she's dying. There are few days when she's not reminded, in some way or another, that death is at her doorstep. She's gonna go to boxing matches, whether it's ladylike or not. Life is too short to not go to boxing matches if that's what you're into. Her male body as a deer is shot full of arrows, running down her back to represent her physical pain, and arrows in her heart for the emotional, and her face is placid and stoic. This is the last of the three iconic paintings that I was generally aware of, the two Fridas, the broken column, and the wounded deer. These were the three that, when I was deciding whether to do this series, I was like, okay, I kind of want to know what's happening here. It also reminds me of The Lord of the Rings. That honestly may be why my brain even processed the wounded deer after seeing it online however many years ago. I half expected to see Tom Bombadil pop out from the trees, singing about the first drop of rain and the first acorn. We even have the scene from the movie here, when Boromir got shot with all the arrows protecting the hobbits. And I would like to emphasize that he did die saving four lives, arguably redeeming himself after succumbing to the pull of the One Ring, which really wasn't his fault. The ring breaks everyone. That was the entire premise behind the hobbits existing as characters. They're a sturdy people. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Come on! And throughout the research, I kept reading about magical realism, that aspirational space between fact and fiction. And what's more magical than the woods? With the woodland creatures and forest sprites and nymphs, mushrooms, those are fun. For me, the wounded deer is the most magical of her works. And having the Arcady Boitler story, knowing the cinematic tale behind who the wounded deer was painted for, being able to celebrate Dr. Wilson's glorious career and his staying alive long enough to see the Fast and Furious movies, and in a real, winding road type of way, be able to tie Vin Diesel into this in a way that, in retrospect, really didn't need to happen. This was supposed to be the length of the entire finale, and I, I don't know, man, I just couldn't do it. There's so much more here, but we're going to hit pause for now. It's a natural break point as Frida gets ready to leave for Gringolandia. A four or five hour episode was a lot to ask anybody to sit through, but I'll release both episodes at once for everyone who wants to power through. For everyone else, enjoy your time away, go watch a Fast and Furious movie or something, and we'll catch up when you're ready.